0: Tip today in association with Slattery's of Bacon, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery's
1: Welcome along to Tip Today, 1800 007, our free phone number. Emma is looking after the programme this morning. Coming up on the show, ambulances took over an hour to respond to 6,200 urgent cases. Pharmacists are calling on smokers across Ireland to quit smoking this ash Wednesday. Ireland's uh, largest cannabis community has created a new campaign for policy changes following recent hospitalisation cases in Tipperary. Are the changes to the Roll Dahl books nonsense? And one year after the war, um, what lies ahead for Ukraine? We'll go live to give uh, just a little later on in the programme. A new book explaining the power of the microbiome uh, for children. And of course, we have gardening with uh, Alton Nesbitt as well a little later on. So if you have a gardening query, if you log in with us as soon as you can, 083 Double three, a double one for your text and uh, your WhatsApp as well. Quick look at what's making headlines in some of your newspapers today. The Irish Examiner, they're leading with climate change, hits fruit and veg supply. A shortage of fruit and vegetables on supermarket shelves has been described as a wake-up call on the impact of climate change on Ireland's food security. And also right across uh, the newspapers today, that story that AIB has defended the debt write-down deal for former Kilkenny hurler DJ Kerry saying external commentary does not show the full picture. Mm. To the Irish Times, their lead story, a reaction mixed to uh, coalition's cost of living package. Uh, the uh, 1.3 billion euro cost of living package unveiled by the government uh, sparked a mixed reaction with uh, business groups giving it a, a broad welcome indeed, but uh, others saying uh, once-off measures for struggling households do not go far enough. Also on The Times today, the United States uh, President Joe Biden has promised that Ukraine will never... Um, be a victory for the Kremlin after Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin again blamed the West for the war and said Moscow was halting participation in its last nuclear arms control treaty with Washington. The Irish Daily Mail, AIB chiefs defending DJ Kerry's deal on that 9.5 million euro debt and the Irish Indo And they're telling us that there is no academic advantage to attending a single-sex school in Ireland, according to new research. The uh, independent front page is dominated by a picture of uh, MEP uh, Mick Wallace looking uh, windswept and interesting as always, but he's hit back uh, very angrily indeed A coverage of the details of his payment as an advisor to a group of wine bars attacking the media for going into a tailspin uh, for a week and describing the controversy as a load of old nonsense. So that's a quick peek at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you want to comment on any of that, again, 083 311 No, Pat brought you that story this morning. It took almost 7 hours and 10 minutes for an ambulance to arrived at a life-threatening emergency call in County Waterford last year. In 233 cases across the country, the response time was over three hours, and it comes ahead of in the Health Committee meeting this morning, which will focus on the Ambulance Service. Councillor Shami Morris is in Nina, and he joins me now. Shami, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Good to talk to you today, Shami. I have a funny feeling that this is no surprise to you, Shamey. Uh
2: It's not, Fran. Look, our our accident emergency services particularly in the Midwest are in in almost uh, in a collapsed state now at this stage, in fact they collapsed totally over the Christmas where uh, a bypass protocol was put, uh, was put on to ambulances not to t- bring people into our only accident emergency, emergency 24 accident emergency uh, unit uh, in Limerick um, our Shannon Dock system uh, collapsed so with all of that um, there's you know uh, with the follow on of that is that our ambulance services are under serious pressure as well
1: is it fair to say that this isn't just about the ambulance service, really? Because, you know, we often heard about ambulances waiting in in docks at the hospitals, Shamey, just waiting to get people into the hospital, so therefore they can't respond quickly enough to other calls.
2: Of course, Fran. When, when ambulances are, are stuck outside a, a hospital's A&E with, with patients in them, and patients being, um, in some cases being, being treated in ambulances, it's quite obvious that the uh, that the ambulance service is going to be under pressure because the our emergency services aren't working properly when we were um um when this uh, reconfiguration of health services in the midwest was feisted on us the one thing we kept saying to the to the people that, that the to the ex so called experts that were doing this to us was that um the goal, uh, there was a golden hour in place where a person gets a, a serious illness you know maybe a stroke or a heart attack or whatever that the the golden hour um is, is it's first important that the ambulance is able to get you and get you into hospital in, uh, within an hour. And of course, we were promised quite sincerely that that um, that that would happen. I mean, look, the, the opposite is the case at the moment. If someone has a stroke, and you know, a certain amount of brain cells die die per minute if 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 you're not uh, treated. Yeah. And people are getting uh, strokes nowadays, and unfortunately, not getting hospital in time, and has incredible consequences for people and, and this is the type of health service that we've been feisted, that has been feisted on here particularly in the Midwest where it, where it is the worst uh,
1: actual emergency mm. uh, unit in the country. I remember at that time, uh, Shamey, that we were promised all sorts of super duper super speedy paramedic response uh, in uh, places like North Tipperary because uh, A&E was moved to Limerick at that stage. Did any of that come about at all? Prime,
2: we did get the paramedics. Uh, we did get uh, excellent paramedics and, and excellent ambulances. But the point of the, point of the matter is, is, we didn't get enough. And uh, no matter how um, how many we get, if they're stuck if they're stuck in, a, in outside a, the hospital in Nimerick, uh, you could have a fleet of ambulances and it wouldn't do its job. So, ergo, if if our A&E system isn't working properly, our ambulance service doesn't work properly.
1: What what role does HICWA have in this? I mean, is it about time they looked at the clinical outcomes of some of these calls, for example?
2: Brian, as we talk, I believe HICWA are are, are doing an unannounced inspection of uh, of UHL uh, today and tomorrow, and uh, it's so unannounced that they knew about it this morning on Twitter. So, and they put it out themselves um, that uh, <coughs> that they were going in uh, into UHL. No, look, it doesn't matter. Who goes into UHN now at this stage? That, 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 that there's so many trolleys in there. I don't. I can't see how they're they're going to be able to hide them, unless of course they hide them in amnesties, which which is another thing that, that 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 could be happening as well. Look, Hickey, it doesn't seem to matter who comes out that this is terrible. I mean, we had the teacher in Limerick last week. He was promising all sorts to to Nina and then went down and promised all sorts to Ennis, and played one side after the other. And actually, not coming up at anything. Um, our local TDs, as Conor um said so eloquently on the radio uh, the other day, have gone to ground in this. They have gone to ground. they have totally abdicated their responsibilities uh, for 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 things that they promised us, and one of them actually got elected on the back of keeping our E and Nino open. And uh, they have gone completely to ground. And if your politicians have gone to ground. They have either embedded themselves with the HSE or to become charmed by the HSE, but they're certainly not doing
1: their job. Maybe they're just being realistic, though, Shami, and they see the writing on the wall here. That, I mean, if, if you're, you're right about what the Taoiseach did. He 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 said opposing things within a very short uh, period of time. But it seems to me that there's not going to be a return of, of A&E to places like um, Nina and Ennis.
2: And why not, Fran? I mean, I can't see, I mean, people keep saying to me that, um, you know, it costs money and we have to get consultants and we have to get, we're losing consultants, nurses and doctors at, an, at a massive rate yeah. because of the conditions that they're working under in at, at UHL, Fran. And, you know, if we, we could, if, if, people, if one or two of them were offered, um, uh, you know, to work in a modern A&E, which, which we have in Ena, by the way, we have a modern A&E in Ena, which closed down overnight. Uh, because there was bypass protocols put in place to, for administrators to bypass the a e we had in it. That was a modern A&E, Fran, that we had in it. It's a modern A&E that, that didn't it. But instead, by the way, you know, the, the, the Taoiseach was in Limerick last week to turn the side of a private uh, a hospital in Limerick. That's what he was doing in Limerick last week. He was turning the side of a private hospital uh, in Limerick, which which is supposed to be uh, the solution to, to our A&E problems in Limerick. We, you know, we we're, we're being told we're getting a 96-bed block built in Limerick, but that 96-bed block, block will only realise 58, 58 beds, Fran, because it's replacing some of the older uh, beds. In,
1: which is nowhere near Athens. what's required, of course.
2: That we, I, you know, I, we need up to 200 beds uh, at the moment, Fran, but, Fran, we were promised 600 beds when the reconfiguration was done. Hmm. We're still, what, 13 years later at 530. Now, to me, that's negligence, Fran. Of a of the highest orders, negligence to the people in the Midwest who would rather die in their bed than get into an ambulance and go into, the, go into to the unit, Limerick, unless they were a really, really sick plan. And that's, that's the reality of it. And if our politicians have decided that to throw their arms in the air mm. and say we can't really do anything about it, then why are people electing
1: it? Yeah, I, I couldn't get over I mean, the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, said to me on this programme last summer that and he agreed with me when I made the point to you, that the, the model in Limerick has not worked. It has failed. And I couldn't believe that, that that wasn't hugely picked up on and then acted upon in some way, you know. I mean, but it has any, failed, according to the Minister. It,
2: it, and any of us could tell you it has failed, Frank, because I'll tell you how I know it's failed. Ambulance drivers are asking people, are you sure you want to get into the ambulance? When it's called to them, rather than take them into Limerick, they're actually asking people... Do you not want to wait till the morning and go somewhere else? Are you serious? That, absolutely. I know that. I know that from several um, situations where ambulance drivers are, are kind of telling people, "Look, are you sure you really want to get into this ambulance?" Because once you get into an ambulance, friend, you have to be brought to Limerick. That's that's the the rule. But you know, the the other side of that is that if you don't get into the ambulance, you can get someone to take you to Port Leisure, or you get someone to take you to Banthislow or Tullamore, which has happened here, Fran, in in our
1: but is there not this new idea now that the ambulance service, the paramedics, will decide whether you go to Limerick or possibly to Nina, uh, depending on the nature of your your illness? Is is that not in place now?
2: The doctors have already. The doctors in the, in, in our tip have already approved, approved that branded. They said the, uh, they haven't got the staff in Nina for that for that system to work. So they all already have turned their eyes it, it, up to heaven it, it, again. You know, unless unless we we. we uh, Actually, the other day we had 10 people on trolleys in Nina. is not suited for trolleys, Fran. uh There was certain circumstances last year where a local injuries unit had to be closed. Our... our um
1: well, that um, was staff-related, was it,
2: Don? Exactly, mm. and, and, our, and our AMU um, um, was only operating at 70% capacity. So mm. how is it going to operate on um, Saturdays and Sundays when it can't operate during the week? So, look, as said, the doctors themselves have already turned their eyes up to heaven on, on that one because we, we don't believe it's going to happen. I have certain questions going into the to the forum um, which has taken place... Um, next Tuesday uh, in, in Galway uh, to, to, to try and, uh, you know, drill through the figures that, that we've been getting. Uh, look, Fran, as I said, our Shenandoah system collapsed, our, our emergency health uh, system collapsed, and our ambulance system has collapsed because of it as well. So what are our politicians doing, Fran? And because they have to, they should be chasing down what Stephen Donnelly month said saying in the sense that the system hasn't worked. And, you know, people will say, should we can't afford to put a, a new A&E in, we can't afford to put no, a new A&E we have new modern A and E's, Frank. We just need consultants. And you yeah, know, yeah, but Ma- Michael Lowry told me on
1: the- this program that, uh, for instance, the theatres in 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 these places and, and in Nina would not be up to standard now. That uh, you know, and it would cost serious amount of money to do to bring it back up to a, a workable standard. Do you, do you go along with that?
2: Well, look, I'm not surprised at Michael Lowry saying that because at the end of the day, he stood behind reconfiguration and told us that reconfiguration was the way to go, and that that uh, everything would be fine. And still we're seventy beds short thirteen years hmm. later. And the promise that Michael Lowry and all the rest of them rested her rested petal on. So uh, you know I
1: right, don't but believe... I mean I'm not standing up for Michael Lowry, but we were told by the experts that this was the center of excellence. This was the way to go.
2: Okay. What has any politician done in the last thirteen years to question why we're seventy beds short of what we were promised thirteen years ago? To give us a safe modern uh, um, system where, where we could, could have faith in the, in the hospital service we we're being given in the Midwest. What have our politicians been doing in the last 13 years? That's what I'd like to know. Like, I would like Michael Lowry, Alan Kelly, um, um, Jackie Cal to come on Tip of him and say what have they done to question why we haven't got the, the promised bed figures for, uh, for a modern A&E system in the Midwest? Yeah, that's well, what I'd like. To, that's the question I'd like to ask.
1: Her. Well, it was the cart before the horse. I mean, they just weren't prepared in Limerick for for all the changes that were made. There, there was no preparation. There was no vision.
2: And Thirteen years later, we still haven't been prepared. So again, what whatever politicians been doing,
1: and even the more worrying is that uh, now they're replicating that that system, that structure back back up in in Drogheda. You know, which is incredible. Yeah,
2: Navan Hospital. You know, the HSC are trying to do the same thing uh, uh, to Navin, and. It's incredible that the HSC seem to be alone to themselves, Frank. I mean, you know, Stephen Donnelly has said that the system here just hasn't worked. Therefore, we should go back to the old system, which was working. I mean, we had a situation here where doctors were referring patients straight into a bed in mm. A. That, that was working. There was no march on the streets to say it wasn't working. There was marches on the streets to try and save us. But there's no, there was 11,000 people marching in Limerick. A few weeks ago, which is quite an incredible mm. response uh, from, the, from the public front, without massive postering campaigns or radio campaigns or ad campaigns to, to get people on the streets. People are so frustrated with the health service. Look, we'll, we'll go back to the, where we started. With. Our ambulance service is now collapsing because of it. And if you have no faith that an is going to get you you know, in, in one hour or three hours or four hours or, in one case, 13 hours, mm. My God, man! I mean, if we haven't got a health service to stand by, what have we?
1: Yeah. Are people dying because of this, do you think?
2: And there was a report done in, in University of America that said that 200, 200 patients uh, have died because of, because of this in the Midwest since the, since the reconfiguration. And, you know, there, there's some people aren't even statistics. I mean, they, 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 there's figures out there that they can calculate it. If someone is on a trolley for X amount of time, obviously they're not getting the, the type of health Health, uh, the health that they need, if they haven't been seen, people are going to die, and there there are um, calculations and figures out there that can that have put together a figure of over two hundred people that have died in the Midwest because because of the the the, the lack of a, a proper um emer- accident emergency service that we have in in the Midwest.
1: That's very damning, isn't it? That Aractus Health Committee discussing the ambulance services today. Have you any any hope? Uh, that that's uh, going to come up with anything that will be useful.
3: Sure, uh,
2: let's see if there's any Midwest uh, TDs out, because uh, in fairness to um, um, the, the McNamara and Clare mm. and uh, O'Donnell and Limerick, um they are the people that are taking on the HCT in this. And unfortunately, our own, look, I don't want to be like a beaten record here, but you know, people are people are elected to do a job, friend. If they haven't got Trusting them to deliver a, a, a proper health service. I, I don't know what we're there for.
1: Shamey, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Good morning to you. That's Councillor Shamey Morris, independent councillor Shamey Morris, As speaking to us from Nina this morning. Eighteen hundred nine three eight double o seven. The text and WhatsApp is oh eight three three double one double three double one. Now the killing all jockey. Uh, Rachel Blackmore was named as the winner at last night's Sports Star of the Year Award Ceremony at the Talbot Hotel in Clonmel. All 12 monthly winners from 2022 were up for the annual award last night, but the judging panel chose Blackmore as the overall winner. Now, as you know, Rachel won the March uh, 22. Uh, to uh, 2022, and now annual award for her success at Cheltenham, winning the Gold Cup at the Champions Hurdle. Her mother, Emer spoke to Tip FM's Ronan Quirk after last night's ceremony.
4: Emer, firstly, congratulations on behalf of Rachel. Um, such a such a an extraordinary collection of young athletes
5: in the room. You must be thrilled that your daughter came out preeminent amongst a, a group a group of giants, really.
6: Well, she was an amazing company. I'm absolutely still in shock. She's just after winning this award and. It's just phenomenal. It's just phenomenal. The support that she's got from the people of Tipperary is just incredible. And the calibre of the people who also were award winners was immense. And the amount of sports that they were involved in, such diverse sports, it was just incredible. So many
4: really impressive women as well in the room and so many women athletes
6: um, athletes, they were wonderful yeah. they were absolutely wonderful um, so thank you so much to Tip FM and to the Talbot Hotel and to all the owners and trainers and the stable staff who make these wonderful days that she's had, make those possible. Because without the stable staff getting up in the morning and looking after the animals, she wouldn't have had her day in the sun. So a big thank you to the team down in Henry de Bromhouse. They're just amazing people.
1: And that's uh, Emer uh, Blackmore speaking to her own Ronan running, running Quirk there at last night's uh, sports awards. Uh, Carmel was on and she says Jamie Morris is spot on. It's not just uh, the paramedics, it's the shitty government policy. They don't even send an emergency ambulance for a suspected stroke or heart attack. We lost my beautiful daughter and maybe, just maybe, if the ambulance came straight away, she would still be here. 1800 938 007
0: tip today with Fran Curry with Slattery's Garage, puck on you can't beat experience with over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts, call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today, 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie
1: now we continue with our conversation about uh, the ambulance uh, service and I'm joined by Breda. Breda, good morning to you
7: Good morning, how are you?
1: I'm very well, Breed, and good to talk to you today. Your experience of the ambulance service, Breed, is what?
7: Uh, well, most of the time it, it's been excellent because I have a rare type of anaphylaxis. Only two of us in Europe have it. Um, but last Monday, um, I was very ill here at home, went into my GP, and the GP away phoned uh for an ambulance and she got another member in her practice to come in and help me as well they thought it was meningitis but it was another brain infection I had um, but I was going in and out of consciousness but I remember her having to phone again the ambulance service saying like "Like this is a GP practice uh, this is an urgent call, we need you but three quarters of an hour later. um the ambulance came,
1: and and tell me about how ill you were at that at that point, Breda.
7: I was brought into resus. Um, I was going. I had a temperature of forty one point six. I'm on oxygen as it is because I have other blood disorders and stuff. Right. And um, but I now I was the girl that was said I'd never go into Limerick A and E because remember my last experience, someone tried to set me on fire. Yeah, yeah. So I it was only that I was sort of gone unconscious um that that's, uh both doctors uh had phoned for the ambulance.
6: Right didn't you? and when
7: I got there now the only thing is I am supposed to be red flagged Um, because of the type of anaphylaxis it's mostly intravenous antibiotics or intravenous medicines Mm. that I'm allergic to but but there could be something else that would set me off now they're actually anaphylaxis where my heart stops, this isn't as I said where I come out in a rash and uh, a bit of swelling this has actually happened me numerous times
1: Right. So this I is this is li- life-threatening stuff here we're talking.
7: Yeah, about. yeah. But my doctor actually injected penicillin. Now I can have penicillin mm. um because I have no spleen. So she gave me penicillin. Um they couldn't get my veins or whatever so she just injected it in. Mm. But I didn't have now my doctor had printed out something. But like it says that I have like, anaphylaxis to these things. Hmm. So when I go into resource, they, they, like, it's, like, it could be anything. Like, they, you have to be, ring Professor Thormley in Galway, the, hmm. my immunologist, to find out what, like, I can't be given anything, really.
1: Right. And what are you saying to me that there wasn't checks and balances I, I, done? I, Is that it?
7: I didn't have, I didn't have, like, my husband laminases, uh, exactly what's wrong with me and we have the immunologist number and don't just give me anything. Right. Now, when I went in and you have to follow protocol in there if they thought it was Bell mm-hmm. and I was trying to tell him about anaphylaxis and I had my band on me and they are only given a chart and there's only a bit of the doctor's team that they are at and they say, oh well she can have this and that because it doesn't say she had anaphylaxis to that, but I've got my husband had followed on uh, the ambulance and he managed to get in with the bag and he was sort of able to explain. But I was at the position where I wasn't able to explain.
1: Because you were so either. unwell.
7: Yeah, now I was sort of given uh, mm. some medicine that I did get a sort of bad reaction too as well. Mm. Um, but... It shouldn't have been given to me, really. You know.
1: <laughs> so the 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 ambulance time was what it was about three quarters of an hour to get to you.
7: Yeah, from both both GPs.
1: Right. Um, and and really then they in, this was they our, brought they you. Ran twice. They brought you to UHL. Then is that right?
7: Yeah, and straight into resource. and and they they. Uh, got me into the scanner and they were able to see, and then did lumbar puncture and that, and they were able to see then that uh, it was encephalitis or something.
1: Right.
7: Okay. Uh, brain infection. Right. So, and
1: uh,
7: he, yeah.
1: And how are you but now?
7: Then, uh, they had to sort of get me out of hospital once I was, like, sh- I should have been on. Um, a real strong antibiotic in that and they had sparked me on that but I was getting reactions and he said "I there was a chance I was going to go into anaphylaxis so they stopped that so I'm on the caliber because I have no spleen so I'm just on that anyway just to right. sort of mind me so I'm at home so I won't pick up any allergies or different things inside in the hospital. In, in the I'm, hospital, they, right. They said they had to balance which was better for me, to be right. at home or be there, but my own BBE has been fantastic. So, so. Are, are,
1: are you saying to me that you're actually safer at home than you are in the yeah. hospital?
7: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And the only time, really, to be in the hospital is when I go into the actual anaphylaxis of my heart. Right. So, like, my son... Uh, the last anaphylaxis I had in November. Mm. It was my son that gave me the EpiPen but I have two EpiPens but it started coming back after 20 minutes so Mm. he was waiting on the ambulance so he used the second EpiPen but that's not good for my brain because I have lesions and different things going on with my brain as well. So...
1: You have so much um, going on in your life, Brida. Um, uh, Brida, we wish you well and thank you for sharing that this morning and uh, look after yourself anyway. Thanks, Brida. Yeah. Thank okay, you. Thanks. Bye-bye, Dose. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's uh, Brida with her uh, experience. Um, 1800 938007. Now, pharmacists are calling on smokers across Ireland to quit smoking this Ash Wednesday, which is also National No Smoking Day. And in Ireland... According to statistics from the HSC, uh, tobacco usage is the leading cause of preventable death, with almost 6,000 smokers dying each year from tobacco-related diseases. Jimmy O'Sullivan is a regular contributor to our programme. Jimmy is proprietor of O'Sullivan's Pharmacy in Featherton. He joins me now. Good morning to you, Jimmy. Happy Ash
3: Wednesday.
1: And, and happy Ash Wednesday to you as well, Jimmy. Um, t- tell me about this, because we talk about this uh, every year, Jimmy, but there's still people that are finding it so difficult to kick the smoking habit. Yeah, it's,
3: it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult um, thing to do, but I are mean, very, very brave people that have done it, and they are so delighted they do it. And it's in everyone's uh, armour that they can do it but I suppose some people just need a little bit of extra help and a mm. little bit more encouragement and I suppose as pharmacists that's what we're here to do we're here to encourage people advise them on the best way of that of giving up of quitting and right. um, moving forward from and, there you and know? what
1: sort of advice uh, do you give Jimmy?
3: I suppose first of all you kind of have to have a chat with people and see where they are on their uh, as regards quitting I suppose like the best way that anyone will quit is when they decide themselves they're going to quit. Mm -hmm. Not usually when they've been told by a partner or a wife or whatever that they need to stop smoking. Um, And they know themselves, like everyone that's a smoker, I think, uh, knows themselves, look, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, And uh, often when they make that choice themselves, uh, that is like 95% of the work done. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it today. And that's it. And and then moving on from there, and then using the best. Uh, say, some people just go cold turkey, mm. um, and and that's probably a really good way of doing it. It's really hard, but you'll always remember those hard days. You know, you said to yourself, "I'm never going back smoking again." I said I've gone through that week or whatever, where I was having such horrible, you know, withdrawal mm. symptoms, cravings, and that, and, and they do remember that as well, but. Um, you know, some people have done it and then they've gone back again smoking. And mm. that's okay as well. Like, everyone is human. Mm. But, um, like, sometimes we maybe have to use something like the nicotine replacement patches or something like that. And that, that they definitely help people a lot, you know. Right. But they, they um, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, not many people have made that statement, though, Jimmy, that maybe the best option is cold turkey, even though it's extraordinarily difficult.
3: Extraordinary, yeah. But I mean... Some people have that ability and yeah. um, people, mm. you know they, they know, they know who you are. As far as, I try this and I just only lasted a day or whatever. And mm. then, you know, those those are not the people probably that are designed to do the cold turkey. Mm. Uh, but like, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of psychology. There's a lot of, you know, help that they can get. So, I mean, I somebody that is stopping cold turkey, they kind of need to maybe think about it for a Day or two, or even, you know, because today is uh, National Non-Smoking Day, uh, they, uh, they need to say, to them, okay, today is the day I'm going to do it. I mean, people that are smoking a lot of cigarettes a day, they probably are best advised maybe to come down each day, maybe mm. for a week, maybe cut it down each day. I, I often say to people, like, if you're a drive, if you know, if you're, if you're, depends where you smoke, like, if people smoke in the car, say, yeah. when they're driving, then put them in the booth, put the cigarettes in the booth for the week so that you, can't, you have to actually stop the car, get out, and yeah. get them.
1: Make, make it difficult you, for yourself.
3: Yeah, and you know they're there. Like, if you're under pressure, you look, I, 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 I know they're there. And likewise, people at home, if they smoke in the, in the home, like try and do and say, OK, I'm not smoking in the house. I have to go out. And then you're kind of going out and, and make sure that it's quite yeah. uncomfortable when yeah. you go out there and, and that you're somewhere that it's not uh, awfully comfortable. And then, you know, that's not it. You know, maybe it's nine o'clock in the evening and there's a cold breeze or it's raining. You say, okay, do you know what? I won't bother. I'll, I'll skip it. And and there is that, that th- three-minute rule as well, which applies to every kind of addiction, um, as far as if you can distract yourself for three minutes. So you, you feel, okay, I need a cigarette now. You can distract yourself for three minutes. Go do something. If you're, in, mm-hmm. if you're at home, do a job. If you're at work, maybe come away from the area where you'd normally have a cigarette go and do something, have a drink of water, come back, and then that craving will have gone, will have disappeared. until I know when you, when you stop initially, there will be a lot of those.
1: Yes, but it, it will yeah, be in waves like that, Jimmy. Is that it? Exactly.
3: Yeah, exactly. So, And then all those cravings, all those periods will, will go further and further apart. So, you know, after about a week, they should be starting to settle. But if you can do it for six weeks, if you can stop smoking for six weeks, uh, you have it done. You know, you're yes. there. Um, and it's like breaking any habit, any addiction. That six week rule applies, you
1: know. Right. And, uh, you know, as if people don't know, but let's just make it perfectly clear. We're talking about heart disease here. We're talking about cancer. We're talking about COPD. Is is that it, uh, Jimmy? Yeah.
3: But I mean, both of them are, you know, our day to day life as well. So, I mean, you're, because you're smoking, you're not getting a, a, the same amount of oxygen into your system a non-smoker would. So, I mean, your energy is down, you know, your, your health is down, everything's down, including your pocket. That's the biggest thing. Yes, yeah, So, I mean, the amount of money that we spend on cigarettes is huge. So, uh, they say that if you stop smoking, you'll actually add 10 years to your life. Wow. But, you know, sometimes we... We need to concentrate maybe on the like, like there's a book, um, Doctor Alan Carr. He, he writes, mm. he has written a book yeah. that a lot of people have found very useful. And what he focuses on is the actual. You say to yourself, "What benefit am I getting from smoking?" Mm. And, and when you start thinking about that, yeah. kind of saying, "Well, actually, I'm probably not getting any benefits. Maybe people use it a kind of as a stress relief kind of thing. So, you know, if they're under a bit of stress or things aren't great at home or whatever, they sit down and they have less cigarette. So, I mean, maybe changing something like that instead of having that, maybe go out for a walk. And then you're asking yourself, "Well, what benefits am I getting out from from walking? And then, then you see you're, you're in a different. Uh, Cattlefish uh, altogether. So you're getting such benefits from that. You're getting fresh air. You're getting your exercise in. So, like substituting one small thing for, from having your cigarette to maybe going for a walk, which has a huge impact on your so,
1: life. Some people decide on on the vape option now. I know it's very controversial in the last uh, few yeah. months, in particular, Jimmy. And I'd like to know your yeah. your stance on that. Would be what? I might.
3: Well, I, my stance is I I, I was actually. I was at one stage. I was there and saying, "Look, it's better than smoking mm. because you're not getting the the negative uh, tar[s] and all those carcinogenic yeah. things that cause the cancer in your lungs. But now I'm gone to the stage where I've seen and watching people p- vaping. So they're vaping Monday to Friday, and then they're smoking th- Saturday and Sunday. Right. They're they're kicking between the two, and also they can't stop vaping. It's like it's. And it's much easier to vape than it is to smoke. Like, yeah, I physically have to go and get out your cigarette. Now they have a tied around their neck and it's just up, down, up, down, up, down. So they're getting a huge amount of nicotine and it's not good. So, yeah, definitely. And the fact that they're addicted now to vaping is not helping at all. So you're better off just to go cold turkey or, or, or use a nicotine replacement Um
1: very good. And, well. and just uh, on a positive note, I, I guess you would have seen people over the years, Jimmy, kick the habit and uh, remain uh, nicotine free.
3: Absolutely. And and they're so proud of themselves yeah. and, and they do it for themselves, mm. but also they do it for their families and their people that are around them. So yes. like it has huge medical health benefits to the people around the smokers as well. So, I mean, you you, you it, it is unfounded, the amount of positive. Uh, positivity that will come out of somebody who stops smoking for themselves and also for the people around them. So All
1: right. All it's right.
3: hugely, hugely important.
1: Jimmy, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank Do you. Do you
3: mind me saying something, friend? Sure. Okay, so if there's the HSC actually, so I'm going just to just talk one minute about the nicotine replacement. So you have the nicotine patches mm-hmm. gone, now I'm just in here. Um, say a spray and combination, you can use combination of all those. But the HSC have a quit, uh, HSE quit is called, on, um, you can uh, get it on uh, ie So you come into the pharmacy, some certain pharmacies are registered for the scheme. So we will do a, a referral then to the HSE, to this quit team. They will liaise then with the Person who wants to give up smoking and use the nicotine thing, and they will give you the nicotine replacement product free. Oh, very so good. it's about saving of about one hundred and fifty euros a month. Wow! So you go into your pharmacy, you sign up for the HS quit thing, and then they will talk to you, and then they'll start. When, uh, the pharmacy will start supplying very the good. nicotine replacement for you. chart. so a really positive thing so they,
1: no, no excuse whatsoever Jimmy thank you so much indeed for your time this morning thank you good morning to you that's Jimmy O'Sullivan of O'Sullivan's Pharmacy in Feather so go into your local pharmacist they'll have that uh, form there and you could get uh, the uh, nicotine um, uh, patches or replacement uh, free which is a, a nice one indeed and if you're attempting to kick the habit to take can we wish you the very very best of luck indeed uh, back in a moment
0: Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the premier county. Slattery'sGarage.ie
1: Now, Ireland's largest cannabis community has created a new campaign for policy changes following recent hospitalisation cases in Tipperary. Over the Christmas and uh, into New Year, in fact, there was a a warning published by the HSE about the use of synthetic cannabis in jellies that had led to some young people in Clonmel needing medical treatment. Now, as a result, CRON, the Irish Drug Policy Organization, says that uh, these incidents show the need for the safe consumption of cannabis through uh, drug policy reform. Well, our news editor, Sheila Nocton, spoke to Ryan McHale, board member of the organisation, and she first asked Ryan what his role was about in the organisation itself.
8: I'm a board member of CRON, the Irish uh, Drug Policy Organisation, mainly focusing on non-problematic drug users and then even more focused on cannabis users.
4: Okay, before we go any further, can you explain to me what non-problematic users means?
8: Yeah, so... The best comparison I would really use is compared to someone probably someone listening to this who drinks alcohol on the weekend cannabis is the second most used psychoactive drug after alcohol in Ireland and uh, the vast majority of cannabis users will use it in the same way as someone uses alcohol um, and of course like alcohol there are problematic users as well there's nobody denying that but um Many people use cannabis because they see it as a safer alternative to alcohol, and I think the scientific evidence supports that.
4: Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's just to be clear who, yeah, who exactly you're talking to when you say that. For yourselves then, what is your main aim as as a group? We, we f- actually first heard from you here in Tipperary around Christmas time when there was hospitalizations over the use of substances or sweets taken out jellies that were had synthetic cannabinoids in them, which is something I wasn't aware of at the time, but you've made me aware of. Just explain a bit about what it is that, that you do. Yeah.
8: So really we have a three main aims, three main kind of target groups that we want to reach out to. Kind of the first is the general public in terms of education and awareness and kind of getting rid of that stigma. So, for example, the information that we, that we provided to you about those uh, those edibles that caused the hospitalisation, that was kind of part of our effort to get the correct information out there um, in terms of drugs and stuff like that because there's over the years there's been a lot of misinformation or maybe a lack of good information and more of a panic about drugs. And there's a lot of research and scientific evidence being done, being gathered in Ireland by state agencies and things like that. So we kind of play a part in, in spreading that around. Secondly, we kind of want to speak with politicians and give them policy solutions to uh, to drug laws because, as it currently stands, the drug laws are, are outdated by international standards. Definitely. Um, And even by Irish standards and the research coming from Ireland, it's outdated. So this is part of the problem um, as to why this this edible kind of crisis is happening. Mm. It's because the laws are outdated. And uh, we argue for a more up to date policy and that includes uh, regulating uh, certain drugs, especially cannabis, regulating it like we do with alcohol, caffeine, nicotine and regulating it in a very responsible manner. And then kind of the third thing we do is we, uh, we actually bring people who take drugs like cannabis and bring them together online, facilitate discussion boards and things like that. And that's why we're sometimes actually ahead of the guards um, and the department of health because we have that access to people who use cannabis and they talk about what they're finding on the streets all the time, uh, dangerous stuff a lot of the time, uh, dangerous people, and um, it's not good for anybody.
4: I'm curious then when you talk about engagement and the work that you're doing and kind of I suppose the first hand information and personal experiences that you have that you could yes. share, when something like what happens in TIP happen, happens do you ever have an opportunity to speak to, like we you know, we have an, a TDs here that I'm sure were concerned and live in the area at that time do, do you have access to talking to people like that or, or how do you go about that because surely that's something they should be aware of uh,
8: Talking to first hand people yeah all the time just yesterday um, I was talking to a couple of people because I just put out a message asking if anyone wants to talk about um, this this type of stuff uh, in terms of like dangerous drugs on the street that aren't what they say they are. So the access is always there and we hear first hand um, that people are having seizures, people are calling ambulances but um, I think honestly it, it's very underreported as an issue and um, we're getting reports from all around the country the odd time but I don't think the Gardaí are actually educated enough on the current drug market. And I think we try to bridge that gap between um, the, the the civilians in the population, the community, and the politicians, because the guards, um, in, in my opinion, they're not, not up to date with this, so if they talk to the guards, um, many times the guards will think that they've just taken too much cannabis um, and they won't bother to test it. We actually don't know how much of the stuff is being tested. Something we'd like to know, but we don't. So we try and bridge that gap and say, this is what we're hearing, here's the evidence we have so far. And the evidence we have so far, even though it's kind of uh, lacking, it's quite strong, it's quite convincing. And I think the evidence that we have alone in Ireland, coming from the HSD and Fair Play Zone for gathering it, is enough to actually change the laws. But what we're kind of trying to say is this this evidence that we have is only a fraction of the real problem, and that's really due to a lack of education within the community.
4: Because I think that was something that became very aware, or, or, I suppose that's something I became very aware of when that story did come out about around South, South Tip was, I actually didn't know the difference between synthetic and I asked you, I remember at the time saying what's the difference between cannabis and cannabinoids, is there a difference? And I saw a lot of the commentary we got in line from young people who kind of Saw this all as a bit of a joke and thought, "Oh, they just they just took too much, or they just like is this taken seriously?" And I mean by the people who are taking it as well.
8: Yeah, so that's the thing. Like cannabis consumers, as I mentioned, it's it's a lot of people are taking it. So the people who work their way to go onto our uh, discussion boards online are usually enthusiasts, and um, who do a lot of research. It's something it's kind of like a hobby to them. The same way you'd have craft brew hobbyists or coffee enthusiasts. So it's kind of similar with cannabis. So you, you can imagine there's different levels of being informed. And I think the education and kind of the general awareness, even among cannabis consumers, and that's kind of what we're trying to do is to inform them. And we're doing a good job with that so far, I think, but specifically the younger consumers who may, might not find themselves on kind of Twitter or more kind of uh, sophisticated message boards like Reddit, they won't find this information. Uh, it's not getting to them, and I don't think it is overstated either. I think this is quite a serious problem. The same chemicals we're seeing now in Ireland pop up over the last uh, couple of years are are actually killing people uh, all over Europe, and they're causing uh, kind of uh, seizures similar to what you see maybe in epilepsy in people in Ireland as well. And it's going on the report, so I think it is serious. Uh, I think it's actually it's also one. Uh, public representatives as well to raise this issue for uh, parents or family members or mentors as well because at the end of the day young people are taking cannabis or they think they're taking cannabis or they'd like to try cannabis so uh, instead of trying to block that out and pretend it's not happening let's just face the facts and have an open discussion and keep people safe you know
4: So let's talk a bit about public representatives there. I know you've got a campaign at the moment and when you click into it, it kind of directs you to, uh, I I looked there, to all the the email address and contact details for the Tipperary TDs. Um, What what are you hoping to to get out of that? And I suppose who are you targeting? Because I'm thinking of parents listening here who, exactly like you say, will be worried about what their young person in their house is, is doing when they're not around.
8: Yeah, so the email template, we are targeting politicians. It's quite, um, it's quite a detailed email that we've written up there. Um, it, has links, it has links to the temporary story as kind of a case in point of this happening recently. and It's got the, uh, the studies that have been published by the HSE. So it's a very informative piece. It's, it's, it's aimed at public representatives, and it refers to uh, reports being done in the Oireachtas at the moment that are, are, are looking at this issue in detail as well and it's bringing their attention that the evidence is all there and um, the evidence that it's happening the, the scale and the effects the evidence for that are there and then um, the evidence in terms of solutions are already there coming from Ireland um, from uh, different committees in the Oireachtas and things like that so we're basically trying to give them the awareness and we're hoping that uh, a lot of people do it because um, the politicians need to see that the public are now aware of this and there needs to be a response we're, we're really just trying to put pressure on the different political parties around the country to act uh, urgently.
1: That's Ryan McHale, their board member of Cran, uh, speaking to our own Sheila Nocton. Eighteen hundred nine three eight double o seven. News and information's on the way.
2: Tip Today
0: with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on You can't beat experience With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie
1: so Welcome back to the second hour of Tip Today, 1800 007. That's our free phone number. It won't cost you anything if you want to make a call and uh, Emma is at the far end of the phone now we spoke to pharmacist jimmy o'sullivan in the last hour that uh, about the fact that this is national no smoking day uh, this ash wednesday a big response uh, indeed and uh, some advice too. hi fran it says i was a smoker for many years i got alan carr's book easy way which worked a treat and then found he had one out for losing weight and decided to try it but in it he kept referring to cigarettes so I never finished reading it or I would have been back to square one but thank goodness I'm off them now for about 30 years and I never once missed them isn't that fantastic Um, uh, Martin, onto his Martin Kennedy he says I smoked my last cigarette 46 years ago last night I went cold turkey, no gum, no patches Uh, cash not wasted on cigarettes at today's prices about half a million euro says Martin. It's just incredible. Um, I smoke a uh, Fran and I have no intention of giving them up. My favourite part of a meal is the coffee afterwards with a cigarette when I'm on the phone, says Patrick. the list is saying I stopped smoking eight years ago uh, because I got a fright and it definitely is mind over matter. As somebody else telling me I'm off the cigarettes two years now. I put uh, the cigarette money into account. I now have 10920 uh, Euro in the account. I'm healthy and I feel great and I'm delighted with life. It's not a very positive text indeed. And look at the financial savings there. Incredible. Now, I have to confess, I never smoked. But friends of mine who... Uh, Smoke and indeed friends of mine who tried to, to kick the habit as well, they tell me it's just incredibly difficult. So, you know, fair play to you if you're having a go. Uh, the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, he's criticised changes to the Roald Dahl books after the removal of some references to things like characters' appearance and weight sparked a rather fierce debate. Dahl's estate and the publishers said works including the BFG and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory had been updated to more suitable uh, to be more suitable I suppose that should read for modern audiences some say they approve of the changes but Mr Sunek spokesman uh, said works of fiction should be preserved and not airbrushed well Eleanor Hooker is a frequent contributor to our programme uh, she's a poet and indeed an author and joins me now Eleanor good morning to you Good morning. Hi, Fran. Um, Good to talk to you today, Eleanor. I was very, very um, delighted to to know you were coming on because I'd love your reaction to this, Eleanor, as a poet and as an author. What do you make of this sort of airbrushing? It's kind of a McCarthyism, isn't it?
9: Um, Well, the idea, I think, is to... It's a debate about cultural sensitivity and the desire by campaigners, I suppose, to protect children from um, cultural or gender stereotypes in literature, but I think, you know, Mulder wrote these um, 40, 50 years ago, and he wrote it in the the sensitivity of that time. And I think there is, you you need to question who's making the decision that the stuff needs to change, that the literature needs to change, and on whose behalf. Um, And that's very, very worrying. I mean, in in 1770, Voltaire said that, he wrote to um, an abbot and he said, I detest what you write, Oh, but I would give my life to make it possible for you to continue to write. Yes. Meaning that um, I don't like what you say, but I, I believe in freedom of speech, so I would fight until the death that you continue to say that. I think there is a danger when you start rewriting text because where do you stop? I mean, how far back do you go? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are aware of the, the, you know, in this um, mindset, today, to write stuff that is literally offensive and, and You know, Their publishers probably wouldn't put it out there. But to rewrite works that's been at another time mm. is a form of censorship perhaps. You know, it, it yeah. has it has dangers.
1: We're, we're, we're just getting a little break above your line there. It might be just where you're, you're, you're standing at the moment, uh, Eleanor. But, I mean, where do you stop on it? I mean, you know, you look at Shakespeare and The Merchant of Venice. There's anti-Semitism in there, I suppose. Um, uh, they, like, right throughout literature, you could find things to rewrite, but it, it would be so destructive, I think, you know?
9: Absolutely. I mean, if you look at Jonathan Swift's The Modest Propo- Proposal, yes. that's a work of satire. Yeah. Um, but it, it's all about um, how the Irish could solve the starvation problem and overpopulation by feeding the young to the rich. Now, if you were going to interpret that as a literal text, it would be deeply, deeply offensive. But what he's doing is making a point about the cruel and, cruel and cold um, policies of the British at that time to the Irish. You know that you can go, go, you can go back, and what we, what I think education does is teach us, children to be discerning. Mm. You know, um, yes. I remember when I was at school, we would take a cart and look at it from every single angle, probably destroying them in the process. Because, you know, there's books that I haven't read since because they were really for me at school, especially poetry. Mm. But um, you're teaching children to be discerning. And, you know, there is this, um, on Instagram, there's this thing where you can um, flatten appearances, you can take away creases, and everything looks generic. And it's sort of a facelifting procedure for literature. You know, there are things that are written that we won't approve of, but you have a choice. Don't read it, Mm -hmm. or read it and be discerning and make your own decision. Or um, Philip Pullman said that rather than rewrite Roldau's work, that it should be allowed to go out of print. But he has his own issues with um, Roldau, and he suggests another. to writers
1: that are not being read as
9: much.
1: Yes, well uh, D- Dal Dahl himself was a, an interesting character um, and, and a difficult character I suppose and very much anti-Semitic in, in, in what he has said over the years in, in uh, interviews and the like. Absolutely
9: his, his um, anti-Semitic anti-Semitism was repulsive but I don't believe any of his anti-Semitism really got into his book. No. his adult books were, were nasty, I mm. mean they were mm. full of um, really unpleasant characters doing very unpleasant things, um, nevertheless you know, that is who ruled out what, you go and read a book either a child, uh, one of his children's books or one of his adult's books you know what you're getting Really, and I suppose the, the the thing is um it's like watching something on t v if you dislike it so much, switch it off. you have that option you have the yes. option not to read it. but um a, a censor- like censorship in to that respect is um it it has its dangers for sure
1: yes, and you know i mean it it, it it it's it's just going to be lampooned when you see you know changing the word fast to enormous i mean I'd prefer to be known as fast rather than. Enormous, you know. So it's it's kind of ridiculous in its own way too, isn't it?
9: Well, what I find very interesting about that is they're removing words and changing words, but they're not removing the intent. Yes. So yes. They, they talk about somebody being enormously fat, and they've now changed it to enormous, but the intent of the words, um, of the of the of the sentence of the phrase remains. So it is a form of sanitization. Um, it's me, I was reading all about this. Um knowing how it's going on your program. And there are lots of people who are saying that it's atheism by corporate, um, by the corporate mm. world, who will we offend unless remove any possibility of offense, rather than, um, you know, the work of literature, or the work of um, Roldau, that it's, it's more to do with a, a commercial enterprise yes. rather than with them. Um, and I mean, that might be a very cynical approach, but, but knowing Roldau's work, um, and children love to be terrified, I, I remember actually my when my boys were small I didn't really read them the Grimms fairy tales because I just I, I just didn't like them mm. I just didn't like they're very dark uh, and thought, aren't they yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and also there were other dark works around but um I would ch- I chose to read those to them instead mm. um even for a Pullman who again said that Goldahl should go out of print rather than be um edited his work um, and his certainly his Dark Materials trilogy came under huge um, criticism in the United States as being anti-church and anti-clerical, um, and he had um, attempts to censor his work as well, or to not have it, um, you know, pumped in various parts of the United States. And earlier this month in Alabama, two hundred students walked out of class because during Black History Month, they were told that they couldn't talk about slavery. Um, because it offended the administrators in the school, so you know it's it's you know it, it depends on who's making the decisions, who decides the it's literature, who decides that they're going to edit it, and why, you know. Um,
1: yeah, uh, Salman Rushdie has uh, come out uh, about this as well, and God knows his life uh, has been damaged uh, so much by by his. Um Uh, persecution, I suppose, over his writing over the time as well. Um, It's interesting, isn't it, how far this can go?
9: Absolutely. And anybody, you know, Salman Rushdie lived in isolation and hiding for years. And then, um, late last year, he was attacked at a reading in America, and he's lost one eye in the attack um, over his um, satanic verses. So he knows um, what that censorship entails. You know, it's life-threatening. Um I mean he also said in a tweet that a was no angel, but nevertheless, um the the danger posed to society and to literature and our cultural history by rewriting texts of the past, um, you know, is is, is quite serious. Mm.
1: Uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, it, you know, when I was a kid, um, Enid Blyton was so important to me. Eleanor. it got me through very dark times <laughs> as a child. I can tell you, and then of course there was an attempt even years ago to rewrite a lot of what she wrote as well. That brought so much joy to kids, and you know, we didn't see anything wrong with it. I still don't see much wrong with it. You know? Yeah. Well, a
9: lot of people, I think, maybe cultural snobs, they, they thought it wasn't literature, and yeah, of um, course, they thought yeah. it was very, um, yeah. very white. I've gobbled those books up during yeah. summer um, holidays myself. I absolutely love them. I remember my mother said she didn't really mind what we were reading as long as we were reading, even yes. with the back of the cornflakes box. And then I remember, I remember my dad um, uh, had a sort of a list of books he didn't want in the house. And then when my brothers and sisters went off to university, of course the first thing they did was slap them back in. And we all read you know, in Paris, Castaneda, even you. And D.H. Lawrence, said, <laughs> yes, Lawrence in that. But of course, nothing makes you want to read something more than the idea that it's going to be censored.
1: That you can't read uh-huh. it, yes, of course, Yeah, yeah.
9: Um, in France, actually, his books aren't the the, the 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 French publishers of rolled and not. They said they're in places as they are and they have no intention of um, rewriting them or editing them. So that's interesting. Well
1: it, it, it
9: a- publishers
1: is isn't it in indeed i said, do, you, do you know where this gets more and more ridiculous in its own way i i was really i think it was a belgium or norway they were trying to uh cast um sam beckett's um waiting for godot and because they didn't give i mean he, the man wrote it and it's very obviously for three male characters but because they didn't give a chance uh for women to apply for the parts um the production didn't go ahead you know, it's, it's, yes. ju- it's just getting ridiculous, isn't it?
9: Oh, well, I read that. Um, you know, it's interesting because you, it, with the rights of an author, they have moral rights. And the moral rights is that what they like to be respected. Um, in, the, in France, um, the moral rights go to the heirs once that person dies. And the heirs can make decisions to change the text. In the UK, um, the publishers own the rights, so they can do it whilst the author is live. But Beckett specifically said that, you know, he gave, you know, he gave instructions in the text about the characters were going to be three men. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't an attempt to exclude women. It was, was his play. Uh, so I, I read about that, and I thought it was very interesting that they couldn't continue because, one, they couldn't honour um, the text. And the other was that the, the institution said you haven't given women the opportunity to apply for the role. And and so they were caught in that bind and that catch twenty two. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And where will this end, do you think? Will we finally see that this is just ridiculous? Um, or is this going to continue on? Because, you, as you say, it has a commercial aspect to it now as well with some of the big publishers not wanting to offend.
9: Yes, uh, well, Netflix put um, Bulldogs state in 2021 and you know there's a lot of talk that they wanted um they wanted a safe product so i'm sure there'm certain there is a, a commercial interest but i think for a moral and even just for cultural and literal um aspect, i think that the works of the past should be left alone and that in the education process um you know the children are taught how to be discerning how to to recognize text for what it is um you know i think there's 230 million books by Dow sold. So there's a lot, of, a lot of his work is out there and is being read. Um, so I don't know where it's going to end, but there's there's all these things about wokeism and cancel culture and and the rest of it. I think just, you know, letting it settle down. I think respect, really, as well. You know, if you're writing today and you're writing something that's deliberately aimed at hurting um, a a group or a minority, you have to really um, consider what you're doing and why you're doing it. And as I say, publishers are not going to take risks on, on work that's going to... Um, uh, be out there for you know to, to cause offence. They're just not going to do it because again they're going to lose money. Aren't going to lose credibility. But this constantly monitoring what you say and what you do, though it's important, um, it, it really curtails creativity. I think if you if you're if you're doing work for the wrong reason, you know if you're not doing work for from a, an authentic.
1: Well, uh, of course indeed a, a little bit Orwellian in its own way if it was taken to the extreme I suppose um, always good to talk to you Eleanor and thank you so much for your time this morning Thank you very much, Thank you. Lovely to talk to you Bye bye to you now, that's a poet and uh, author Eleanor Hooker there uh, and a marvellous poet uh, she is too saving her blushes and all of that um, 1800 938 007. apologies by the way for the state of uh, the line there it wasn't all it should be but it's always a delight to hear from Eleanor alright uh, what is it now 10.23 back in a moment
0: Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Facon Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Facon, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the premier county. Slattery'sGarage.ie
1: The United States will back Ukraine in its fight against Russia for as long as it takes, US President Joe Biden said on that unannounced visit to Kyiv. He says, uh, we have every confidence that you're going to continue to uh, prevail. Now, the West has backed Ukraine to a degree that Vladimir Putin and perhaps the West itself indeed uh, never expected in the year since the Russian president launched his invasion. Now, you might remember that recently we caught up with John Melman Andrew Last, who's carrying out humanitarian aid in the Ukraine, and he joins me now from East Ukraine. Andrew, good morning to you.
10: Good morning, Fran. Can you hear
1: me? Okay, I can hear you perfectly well, uh, Andrew. Great to talk to you today. Where exactly are you, Andrew?
10: So right now I'm in Kharkiv city, which is uh, in the in the in the Donbass region, which is basically eastern part of Ukraine.
1: And just to remind us, what exactly
10: you're doing there? Yeah, so Fran, obviously, um, I suppose my missions over to Ukraine kind of started uh, when I was trying to evacuate my father-in-law back you know, in February and March. uh, But while I was doing that, I was bringing humanitarian aid and medical supplies as a former firefighter and a current medic and a clinical educator. Um, I was trying to be as useful and... um, and, and as helpful as I could to the people most in need in Ukraine. But obviously, um, in the initial stages of the invasion, I wanted to evacuate my father-in-law, Victor, which, um, you know, after about five, six months, we managed to uh, get him back home uh, to Ireland in May. And uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to the people and to the government departments like the HSE and the uh, Irish Air Corps who, who managed to help uh, me to achieve that.
1: Tell me about the area that you're in, Andrew, and how volatile is it there?
10: Well, just this morning, Fran, only about an hour and a half ago, there was four massive explosions here in Kharkiv. There was cluster munitions, basically, and large missiles that hit a factory very close by and uh, probably about two kilometres away, but the, the explosions can be heard all around the city and uh, I have a couple of good people that just kind of keep an eye on things for me just to let me know when, um, you know, there's drones in the air or missiles in the air, you know, when to take cover and when not to. So at least we have uh, some idea of uh, of what's incoming.
1: Right. So you, you're you very close to what we would describe as the front line, I suppose.
10: Well, I suppose, look, uh, like every, every city um, and any uh, city that has critical infrastructure, like power plants, electricity, they're mm-hmm. all targets under the Russian Federation. The front line, again, is well, what we would call zero line, is the line where the soldiers are fighting in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Then you'd have first line, second line, third line, then after this. Uh, you know, I have never been at zero line. I've never been at, at uh, line one, say, for example. Um, but I have been very, very close in evacuating people. Um, from the liberated or newly liberated towns. So I would have been within probably a kilometre and a half to, yeah, to maybe one kilometre um, from that at some point. But I'm not there always. I'm moving around. I'm bringing supplies actually just right now to a hospital. Um, this hospital is, is based in Kharkiv. They have nothing left. And we're trying to just give them what we can.
1: Um, that visit by, um, uh, by uh, Joe Biden, um, much is being made of it in, in the media all over the world, I suppose. How important was that visit to the people of Ukraine?
10: I think very important, Fran. I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially important for the people of Ukraine to know that uh, the people of the world are supporting Ukraine and its citizens in this, what is clearly an act of terrorism from the Russian Federation. I mean, like I've said to you before, the um, the situation is that, you know, no Ukrainian has invaded Russian territory. None. Uh, the Ukrainian people do not want Russian territory. They want to reclaim back their own territory and they will defend themselves uh, by all means necessary.
1: We're a year on now, Andrew. Uh, what about the morale of the people? What are you hearing and seeing on the ground?
10: Uh, well, in Kharkiv here now at the minute, you know, we have good days and we have bad days, Fran, um, like like any. Um, the last couple of days have been relatively quiet in terms of um, actual missile attacking. But the first three days I was here, which was probably about a week and a half ago, I arrived in Kharkiv. Uh, there was lots of explosions there, the last three days, especially, Fran, there has been this kind of feeling of just, you know, something is about to happen. Mm-hmm. And people were a little bit on the edge here. Um, and obviously with the explosions there today, this is really after kind of spurring them and waking them up a little bit, especially here in Kharkiv. Um, obviously, look, it's terrible what's happening. There was a, a very bad situation there in Hurston, again, where a supermarket and residential buildings were attacked uh, and hit with missiles and and unfortunately killing uh, innocent civilians. Um, so these are strategic attacks by Russians. Um, but what I can say is that the resolve of the Ukrainian uh, people uh, is that you know they will fight for every square inch of their land and they will make uh, Russians pay for every inch that they try to take. All they want is to push them out of their land and to live their lives in peace and, and rebuild. That's, that's it. So and- what I would say overall is the morale is, is actually quite high.
1: And there is no conversation around giving up areas of Ukraine for the sake of peace at this
10: point, Andrew? No, absolutely not. I mean, Fran, um, there's, there's a saying in, in Ukraine, obviously people might have heard Slav Ukraini, which means glory to Ukraine, and then people will answer by saying Heroyam Slava, which means uh, glory to heroes, but then other people will say Visa Ukraini, which means everything will be Ukraine again.
1: So that's the feeling on on, uh, the ground. Have you met people who have lost family members in in the war, Andrew?
10: Yes, uh, I have, Fran. There are many people here who have lost, you know, either uh, sons, brothers, fathers who have been fighting. There have been medics killed and targeted in the likes of Krematorsk and uh, in the Bakhmut areas. I currently have a very good friend of mine who I'm working very close with. We're actually bunking uh, together in the same room and uh, he's actually in back right now. So uh, we're trying to keep an eye on things and just to make sure that uh, he has the support he needs because there is a a push going on. But there are many people. Everybody has lost something here, Fran or somebody.
1: Would you speak to our listeners this morning, Andrew? Because there's a lot, and I notice it from what's coming into us by text and WhatsApp and the like, there's a lot of division now in Irish society about the amount of refugees that we're taking in, the cost uh, to us. Uh, There's questions about whether it's affecting our own housing issues for for Irish people here and uh, services and schools and health and all of that. What would you say to listeners this morning, Andrew?
10: Um, it's it's very difficult, Fran. I mean, as I said on the last interview, I've I've been the subject of uh, of attack from these trolls, and and unfortunately, they're, they're lost and misguided people. And and what I feel the narrative seems to be that they're banding every group of refugees in together, and they're they're, they're picking a, a small minority of bad apples who have come in, and they're they're blanket washing and including the Ukrainian people in that. You know, the Ukrainian people didn't ask for this. They didn't want their homes taken. They didn't want, the, you know, their towns and cities and villages bombed. You know, if this happened in Ireland, what would happen? You know, we would we would hope that another nation or a multitude of nations would support us in this difficult, uh, difficult moment for the Ukrainian people. And what I would say as well is that, you know, this isn't too far away from our own history, Fran. You know, we have had this, you know, ourselves throughout, and we all remember that, maybe not remember, but we, we through, through history and through learning, uh, about the, the potato famine in Ireland. You know, and Irish people actually had to move all around the world, whether it was over to the UK or whether to, to America or Australia. We, we, we had to leave Ireland. You know, and people took us in and, you know, there was issues, obviously, when we went to America, you know, of of xenophobia and things like this. And what I'd ask people is just to think, think about it before you write that comment on social media. You know, have a think about the people who who, who do genuinely need help here. And what I would also say, Fran, as well, is that, you know, our country isn't perfect and we definitely have our own shortcomings and, uh, you know, things that we need to do and, and improve on. But the people that we need to be looking at and asking those questions to are our government. You know, now, I am a, a very proud Irish man. I'm very proud of our country. And I couldn't thank my government enough, the Irish government, for what they did to evacuate my father-in-law out. But with that being said, you know, it's our government's failings you know, with the housing crisis. It's our government's failings for the hospital crisis, for the trolley crisis. Mm. It's the Irish government's responsibility to all citizens and residents of Ireland to improve our nation and that's to build the critical infrastructure that is required, including hospitals and schools and all of these things. So what I'd ask the people is, please, do not point the fingers at Ukrainian people or any international refugee for that matter. You know, obviously, there are things that need to be improved on and definitely vetting and correct vetting needs to take place. You know, when we do take people in, you know, for safety and for security reasons. But what I would also say as well is that it's our government who is responsible for that. So please leave the Ukrainian people alone.
1: Well said. Uh, I live pretty near the Dundrum area, and there's quite a quite a, a number of um, Ukrainian refugees there, and I see them walking from the hotel up to the village, Andrew. And you know, it's a potholed road; it's a dangerous road. They're they're pushing buggies, and so it's not a holiday camp. You know, it's not something you would choose and say, "Oh God, this is this is no. fantastic." You know,
10: no, and most of them want to go home, friend. They yeah. all want to go home. They want to rebuild. You know, and they're so grateful as well. And, you know, like I've been in, you know, very well, um, you know, well done cities. You know, I've been in Kiev, Lviv, say, for example. And these are, you know, these are busy, bustling cities. Um, but I've also been in very poor villages and towns, Fran. And, you know, for for Ukrainian people, a lot of what they're experiencing in Ireland is almost like a luxury to them. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're a hardy people. They're just like us. um But... You know, I would say maybe they might be uh, 10, 15 years, maybe even 20 years behind us and what they want to do. And you can see even what Zelensky's trying to do. He's trying to remove corruption from government and he's fighting a very, very difficult battle. But the Ukrainian people, they will just keep going, Fran. They'll get up every morning and they'll do what they have to do. And, you know, that, that's, you know, that can only be, be seen as, as admirable. Is there an awareness of Ireland
1: among Ukrainian people there on the ground? I mean, do, do they know us? Do they know about us?
10: Well, I suppose, look, I, I wear an Irish patch on my left arm and uh, everybody has a quick look at it and they say, oh, Irish, you know, so they know, you know, they know who the Irish are and how much help that the Irish people have given since the very, very start of the invasion. And they are eternally grateful you know for for the help and you know a lot of the questions you know when i meet people is what are you doing here and you know obviously i fill them in on my story but most of what i just tell them is look i'm here to help We're, you know the international community is with you you know maybe not everybody but i can guarantee you it's the majority of the international community are and will stand with ukraine
1: well andrew we wish you the very best how long more will you spend uh, there before you come back to us
10: Uh, No idea, Fran. I'm kind of a resident here now at the minute. But, uh, you know, obviously there's, you know, stuff going to happen within the next few days. And it started already this morning with the missile attacks. So we're just waiting on the next push. And uh, basically we're going to just try and, you know, beat them back with sweeping Mm -hmm. brushes. And and I'm going to just continue doing the medical aid and humanitarian aid. And anyway I can be useful and resourceful to the Ukrainian people, that's what I'll do. So uh, I haven't given myself a time frame yet to come home. But, uh, we'll see, you know. Yeah. I keep are, going until the war is over. Are you
1: concerned about the Russia's much vaunted spring offensive? Then is there is there more to come? Even though I was reading about their their casualties are running about a thousand soldiers a day dying.
10: In in some cases, Fran, and these are unconfirmed, but uh, you know, I have it from from very very good sources that even in some locations, it's two two and a half thousand Russian soldiers. Oh. And the thing now with uh, with the uh, the Russian. Uh, army uh, invaders who have come in, it's not going to be prisoners now that uh, uh, are going to be taken from prison. Now, the, the, the bodies that are going to be sent home now to the Russian people are going to be their sons, their fathers, their brothers... And this is going to be the tragic, tragic story of it all, is that the Russian people are sitting at home and they're feeding into their own propaganda machines and uh, and they're doing nothing. And to quote, obviously, a very, very famous uh, author, uh, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people or good men to do nothing. And that was from Edmund Burke.
1: Um, Andrew, we wish you the very best and be safe out there. And we look forward to seeing you back this side of the world soon enough. Uh, take care of yourself, Andrew. Frank, thank you as always. I thank talk you. to you soon. Thank you. Good morning to you. That's uh, Andrew. Andrew Last there, Clan Melman, uh, doing tremendous work there in uh, Ukraine. Eighteen hundred nine three eight double o seven. The text and WhatsApp is oh eight three. 311 double, double, 3311. A uh, Thurlis listener on to us uh, pretty much uh, straight away to say, Fran, the difference with the Irish people back then is that they went to other countries um, to work and not as uh, refugees. Um, okay, lots more coming in on that. I'll put it together and I'll bring it to you in just a few moments.
0: If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on
1: 1-800-938-007. Fran, we saw you walking down the footpath in Cashel last week with some people and we had to look twice and my mate said, Is that friend Curry? Because he's lost a lot of weight. And on Friday, tell Johnny Luby not to be slagging you again. Um, because it, you look good, it says, from the old stock in Cashel. Well, hello to the old stock in uh, Cashel, indeed. And Johnny Lou, yeah, fat shaming me, imagine. Imagine in this day and age, the cheek of oh, 083 311 double double 3300. Double We're still getting in lots about uh, giving up cigarettes and people who have successfully. Given up uh, cigarettes, and many of our listeners on to say they they did it cold turkey. So fair play indeed. And today, of course, is National No Smoking uh, Day. And uh, well, you might like to reflect on smoking if if that's your thing. And uh, there's lots of help there from the pharmacies around the county where that is concerned. Uh don't forget we have gardening towards the end of our programme. If you have a gardening query, can you log it with us soon, please? Oh wait, three three double one double three double one. Now service for life and support of all who have in any way been affected by suicide will take place at the Augustinian Abbey in Feathert on this coming Sunday, the 26th at 12 noon. And Father Iggy O'Donovan is an Augustinian priest-based in Feather, regular contributor to the show, and he joins me now. Good morning to you, Father Iggy. Good morning, friend. And uh, a pleasure to talk to you, as uh, always. Um, you've had these services in the past, Father Iggy, haven't you? We,
11: we, we've had, and uh, like everything else for the past few years, COVID interfered with our plans. And uh, But we've had them in the past. and In fact, before I came to Featherl, when I was based up in Rocha, that's when we had them first. Mm. And uh, like a, a few moments ago, I listened there to Johnny Luby doing his ad to slow down because of the awful loss of life on the roads, which mercifully is less than it used to be. Mm. But the other great, if you like, scourge in our society, suicide is a major issue for many people directly or indirectly because a suicide affects many, many people in many different ways, whether it be the immediate family concerned with the tragedy, the first responders, the health services, so many people, relatives, friends, the community. I know the old cliche, no one is an island, mm. we all belong to humanity, but it's very, very true. And I, Could I yeah, use one little analogy, Fran? Of course. The, about about the, the value and the gift of life, which we can take so much for granted. We've all watched the Turkish um, earthquake tragedy, mm. and here and there we rejoice when you see a policeman or a fireman or whatever coming out of the rubble with a little with a little living baby a mm-hmm. body still alive fantastic and how we celebrate that little life uh, that even the adult life that they've in fact meant to save one or two out of thousands and yet how suicide is can often be taken so much for granted that it's a precious life which is lost every day and it's it's not just that, but it's the searing wound that it leaves. I know it personally close up too, but it's a searing wound that it leaves. And uh, if, uh, as a community, we can address this topic of suicide, and uh, the little service on Sunday simply it is, a, if you like, it's a, a celebration of life and um, support for mm. families who directly, indirectly have been touched. And people like the Seesaw Organization in San Mel will join with us, some of them there and hopefully some of the students in the school here in Feddern and so forth. And really, it's a solidarity with people who have been touched by suicide, but also a celebration of life in general, as I said, giving you the analogy there of the, the Turkish earthquake and how delighted we are if even one
1: life is saved. Of course. It's very timely as well, Father Iggy, because there's a study published... Uh, today, telling us that the rate of suicide in the traveling community, for example, six times higher than the general population. I mean, that is incredible, isn't
11: it? it did that, yeah, and I, I wouldn't be able to give you a scientific answer to know why be six six times higher sounds incredibly high yeah, yeah. from the, the general population, but uh, it may point to various issues which these people face, or that maybe the... the services available to them, maybe less. I don't know. Yes. I, 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 this is a layman talking now on this one. But it's it's fantastic that you mention that, Fran, because uh, it is a frightening statistic six times higher. Yes. But it is a major issue. But at least now, I think we're confronting it better. My God, when you had a time when you had families who were so ashamed if it happened mm-hmm. that they hid it, art it was often covered up even by, sometimes even by the local Garda, who was being decent. And he might say, look, he's could well have been an accident. Mm. Mm. It's not necessarily suicide at all. You know, yeah. you never, you can never tell.
1: And so and some of that cover-up...
11: What he's doing there is being decent to the family. Of course, but it shouldn't yeah. be necessary to do that because, like any yeah. other tragedy in life or the death from cancer or anything else, uh, to, to confront the reality of it.
1: Yes. And
11: that's what we're doing on Sunday. But above all, it's a celebration of support anybody who feels they've been touched by suicide or simply haven't been touched but would simply like to participate.
1: Of course. Uh, some of the cover-up uh, was useful to families though, because in the past, uh, you know, the the body of somebody who died by suicide wouldn't be accepted into the church, Father Iggy.
11: Oh, sure. And the unbaptized babies too. I mean, it was, uh, when I look back on it, it was frightening. Mm, and yeah. when you had a family at the most terrible time in their life, their most terribly experienced the bereavement itself, then the shame and the hurt, and to be told that their loved one had died in sin. Look, I cringe when I think of it. But luckily, I don't think many of our listeners would have experienced that, if any of them, in fact, at this point. But but it was a taboo, and to some extent still is a taboo, and I do know that some families would still, and I know myself, we find it difficult to talk about it because there is a sense of shame, and there was that old thing of sin and whatnot, but hopefully we've gotten over that. And today I would think the Christian community will rally around the family and rally around someone who has been so touched. And that has been my experience at the funeral of suicide people. Generally in this country, for all our fault, our church does funerals well. And suicide is certainly one of those where they have had a steep learning curve but I think they've done
1: it, and I'm thankful for that. Have you contemplated on it, Father Iggy? Because, you know, I mean, while there's huge cost of living issues and various other issues indeed, um, there's more opportunities for people than there ever was. There's more education now. There's more travel. Um, have you Have you contemplated on why so many people are choosing this?
11: One of the things, certainly a very high cause, I think most people would tell you, most certainly the professionals, that, a Depression is certainly very often a factor, very often, yeah. but where does that where is that coming from? Definitely, one of the factors is loneliness. The number i 've come across you know suicides that have happened are threats of suicide or attempted suicides it 's so often a factor, and while at one level we never had more communication, we had never had more ways of keeping in touch with each other, but in a strange way. In other ways, we can be quite distant from each other and the electronic age has taken over and we'll probably communicate less. And all things like, say, the country pub and uh, people turning up, get, even the old ma- gathering for mass on Sunday, which everyone went to, mm. and the chat outside the church in rural Ireland was legendary before you went up to the match in the afternoon. Yes. All of, there was a lot of old-time communication, visiting of houses, certain houses or places to go to to talk and that, And there was a hell of a lot of that. There's less of that now. At one level, we have so much communication, like even I talking to you now. Mm. And Mm. Last night, I spoke to somebody in South Africa on the phone. But at the other level, sometimes the personal communication can be actually quite less. And that thing of loneliness, and it was God rest Mother Teresa of Calcutta, one of the things she said, that the poverty she saw in Calcutta was something else. But she said the poverty of the West above all, the West, the rich West, she said, I think is loneliness. And it's definitely a factor, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and and many of the people choosing suicide as well, so young, Father, with the lives ahead of them, you know?
11: They are. And um, one of the things that would alarm me a little bit, there may be a touch of coffee copycat. Yes. Because it's no longer quite the taboo subject that it was. And several times young people have said to me, and I try to keep in touch with young people as best I can, here and there. Very few of them come to church anymore, of course. Though, ironically, somebody were coming to me on Sunday. But they will often tell you, look, in the end of the day, my life is my own. I do what I like with it. And uh, it's no longer quite the taboo subject. Like I, as a teenager, we'd never, I don't think, I can never remember we talked about it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But today they can talk quite openly about it. And uh, I did come across one example. Uh, I leave it very general now. But I spoke to a group of young people whose friend had died by suicide and they were picking music for the mass. And they said, when we were talking there one night, didn't somebody say that we'd love, if I ever taught myself, I'd like this music? I said, yeah, but what struck me was the fact that they were even talking like that as teenagers. Something alarming about it. Now, I don't want to come across as a total alarmist mm. because the great majority of people are not in this category and the great majority of young people don't talk that way. But the issue is there. Yeah. And if, if we, as we as church, For most things, we are now quite irrelevant. I know that, but for things like this, I think we can be quite relevant and think we can have something to say, something meaningful. And other than that old type morality, which the price of which we are still paying, that we we handled so badly. I won't go into
1: it now. Of course. But is it time for the church to take a stance on this, a social stance on this? Because, I mean, look at the lack of services, Father Iggy. I mean, even in Tipperary, for example, look at what's been happening with calms, completely let down our young people. Um, is is it time that the church spoke out and almost got political on this in some way? Yeah,
11: well, first, I think for the church. I and mean, look, I'm, when I say church, I'm a member myself. I'm, I'm talking about other people. Of course. It's I suppose our street credibility in recent years has taken such a knocking because of the various scandals and rows that we're almost nervous to speak about anything yeah. in case people say, "What did, well, what did you do about the scandals and all that? I know. And that will be said to us, and it has been said to me. But uh, your, your point is correct. And I think it's things like this, like later on in the year, we're actually going to do the road traffic victim math mm. as well. Because I think these are very real issues. And if the church is to be relevant to modernity, relevant because we all face the fact that churches are largely empty and largely a very elderly congregation. And yet there's people out there who have an attachment to church in different ways. And uh, I suppose the best way we see it nowadays is that we sit at the funerals and things like that. Mm. But certainly issues such as this and social issues, I think the church needs to proclaim them boldly and bravely and, of course, they'll be told, you're rich, it is rich for you to talk. That will be said, but that will always be said. And I think your point is correct, Fran.
1: So this coming Sunday, then, 12 noon, and I, I, I know for sure it's not just for the area, everybody would be made welcome.
11: Uh, oh, goodness, anybody who can make their way to the Abbey in Feather on 12 o'clock on Sunday, you're so welcome. If you know someone that you think might, and nowadays, I spoke about communication a moment ago, of course, it was out on live stream as well, And uh, so I asked a few of the students here in the school in Saturday, would they like to participate with me? And any of them I asked said, we'd love to, we'll do that. They didn't promise they'd be there again the following Sunday, of
1: course.
11: (laughs) But they they were happy to chip in and and I'm damn happy that they're happy to do it.
1: Very, very good. uh,
11: And I think it's a little service we can render, small do it is, but it's something.
1: Well, it certainly is a service for life. Uh, Father Iggy, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank Thanks, Brian, and
11: to all your listeners.
1: Thank you, and good morning to your father. Iggy O'Donovan, a great friend of ours indeed. Augustinian Priest, based there in the Abbey in Feathert. And uh, that uh, service for life taking place this coming Sunday at noon. And everybody, welcome. 1800 938 007. Welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. 1800 007. That's the free phone number. And you can text and WhatsApp on oh eight three three double one double three double one. You can email at any time. And that's tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, uh, Dr. marie Ussis Eussis-Ryan is a gut health expert and a consultant gastroenterologist at Tipperary University Hospital. She's written a book explaining about the power of the microbiome for children. It's a wonderful book and I'm delighted to say that she's with me in studio. Anne-Marie, good morning to you. Good
5: morning, Fran. Thank you very much for and, having
1: me. Oh, you're very welcome and great to see you as well. It's the most wonderful book. It should be out there, should be available to every child. Will you tell me about the background to it, though? It's called Bugs of War, Bug of War. Bug of why, War. why did you decide to write this, Anne-Marie?
5: I suppose, fan, I've been a doctor a very long time now, longer than I haven't been a doctor, actually, and I work in gastroenterology. And more and more and more, it was just really annoying me that people didn't realise that a lot of the trouble they had with their illnesses, causing their illnesses, was the way they were eating. And I started looking into this some years ago and it's researching the microbiome myself... And it is just the most fascinating journey I've been on. And all of a sudden, everything I'd been seeing all the years all made sense. And it is because of the way people are eating that we are getting ill these days. And that is the nuts and bolts of it. So I was, I'm working the hospital and working full time. And I just wanted to get this message out there, but I didn't know how. Mm. So I started on Instagram um, a couple of years ago and I started teaching. Bowel health, right? Well, sure, nobody would listen to me. They were kind of, oh, they all went on to the next makeup guru or the next clothes thing. And I'm actually really into that as well. So I started doing all sorts of stupid things like dancing, showing them clothes, everything. And I got a following that way. And then I switched back to what I really wanted to teach them, which is bowel health. Mm. And it's really grown from there. And then my listeners would say to me, please write a book please write a book and I thought about it and I thought you know what the adult market is very saturated Mm. but what I want to do is prevent illness in the first place and where you start that is childhood and I did my own market research. I went out on the streets. It would have been secondary school students because the primary ch- school children obviously aren't on the streets. And I'd stop groups of youngsters in everywhere I was in Ireland. I'm always travelling around. And I'd say to them, have any of you ever heard of the microbiome? And none of them, not one, ever had. And I said, why not draw, draw, do a book for children to explain to them what the microbiome is, so that any child in Ireland that you stop in a decade's time and say, do you know what the microbiome is? The same as they'll know Paris is the capital of France. They'll know what it is and they will relate it. And this relates also to your last speaker, Father Iggy, because it's your mental and your physical health are so much at stake from what you actually put in your mouth every day.
1: And it's only recently we know about that relationship between our tummy and our brain.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's hugely massively important there's all sorts of methods by which the messages get from the gut to the brain the vagus nerve would be the main one um, very big nerve all our messages come in through our gut and send to the vein, brain but also our gut is where most of our neurotransmitters and most of our hormones are actually made and if we don't eat the right foods in order to make them the messages to the brain get completely gargled and the the brain gets on high alert and don't forget the brain is the most important thing in your body absolutely or made to carry it around mm. so if it's unhappy it takes all your blood supply and all the attention to make it happy and the gut flounders and that's where all this thing like leaky gut all that starts and it's an absolute vicious circle that can be absolutely prevented or stopped midway by eating properly
1: Now the book is beautiful because it's it's simple it's for kids but I learned so much from this that it's just (laughs) incredible so uh, adults should be reading it as well it's it's about basically the two kinds of bugs yes, isn't it? It, it? Yes. Because you simplify it down t- yeah, to that. Would, I, you, would you tell us about that?
5: I will. I, I firstly have to thank my daughter for thinking of the name because Bug of War, Bug of War. was exactly what I wanted yes. and the t- and my nephew for illustrating it. And I thought if I can simplify it, there are, Fran, about 100 trillion bugs in your bowel okay, so I couldn't put all those on the page. So I just took a representative sample of three in each category, the good ones and the bad ones and alike in the world, unfortunately there's good people and bad people, mm-hmm. there's good bugs and bad bugs. And what I'm trying to impress on the children is that the good bugs, namely Mo, Joe and Bo, um, are constantly at battle with the bold fellows, no, so and foe with an e, to to they want the pr- proper food in order to be able to fight the other three off and be happy and not give them tummy aches and all the rest of it. So I use very simplistic terms to try to get it across to children um, about them, and uh, I just think it, I just think it's kind of exciting. I'm, I'm it's very buildable. This I really, and, really. And just love for it.
1: clarity, and re- the yeah. microbiome is, is the Combination of all the bugs—is yeah, that it? it right, is. right. All the bugs Both in good your and mouth. bad.
5: Good and bad, and right. they're not only in your gut friend; they're all over. Yes. There's literally more bugs on your finger than there is people in England. Like it is—it's extraordinary. We're we're actually 90 percent bugs and 10 percent human. Actually, right. it's a, a fascinating science. However, in the bowel, there are about 100 trillion bugs or thereabouts, and there are good ones and bad ones. And the good ones basically love fibrous foods and resistant starches. And the bad ones thrive on the saturated fats and the sugars. And it's as simple as that. And unfortunately since World War Two, feeding the masses with cap reforms, everything, um, the cheap food policy, food has, has more and more and more gone into a factory and come out the other end with the fibre taken out and the additives, emulsifiers, the, the surfactants, all that added, and the sugar. And we're eating that. We're not eating the basic foods that our grandmother would have recognised as food anymore. And we're getting the modern illnesses, the likes of the autoimmune illnesses. They have increased 300% since the 1950s. The likes of the neurodegenerative illnesses like um, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, um, go back the way, the cancers, everything. Almost everything. And I'd have people that come back to me say, oh, it's your genes. That's all that matters is your genes. Well, I can tell you they're wrong. There's so many studies done worldwide, hundreds and thousands of studies and mega analysis. And 90% of your genetic fate can be determined by your environment and how you live. So even, if, you,
1: even if you're predisposed Absolutely. in some
5: way? 100%. Wow. even if you're predisposed you can ward off basically your environment load the, your your genes load the gun and your environment pulls the trigger of that gun and it totally depends now I'm talking about food here because it's the easiest one obviously you also have to think of people's living conditions their stress levels um, pesticides poisons all those kind of things but where I'm working from is your food because your food is really the nuts and bolts right. of
1: it and the clever of the book is that a kid would begin to realise that what they're putting in their mouth is either suiting the bad bugs or the good bugs and they might just think twice.
5: Absolutely. And what's more, I'm trying to get it reinforced. So I've written this book uh, this book, and the, the people are uh, doing it at home with the children. They're really enjoying it. But my absolute aim is to get it taught in schools, Frank. That's what I really want. Because I feel, you know yourself, if you learn something once, you might remember it in, in five minutes or an hour or three weeks, but you won't remember it in five years. Mm. So I'm trying to get this on the syllabus in school in the SPHE curriculum. Um, I'm presently getting a website ready in order to tie in with the book so that the teacher literally goes to the lesson one, which will be maybe two pages at a time, and they have um, extra resources, they have little videos, they have questions to work through with the children. And then the following week, do the next two pages, the following do and do a module of it, say in first, in first class. Go back in second or third class with a more advanced book, which I hope I'll write if the... This one is a success. And then back in fifth and sixth class with the more advanced one again. And by the time they get to first year and they don't feel so good or they're a little bit bloated or they're a little bit unhappy or they're constipated, they say, oh, yeah, it's what I ate. That's all I want. I want to make that synapse, if you use a medical term. I want to make that bridge that gap with the knowledge that they can change everything by how they eat.
1: You talk about poo. In the yes, book as well, and and the importance of that, and the importance yeah. of knowing about that, and and uh, and yeah. what about the, addressing that with kids? It's a bit of fun as well. It isn't
5: is, it, you know. You yeah. know I mean? you it's know? absolutely a bit of fun because, like everybody poos, even their famous footballers, they yes. all poo. I mean, yeah. you know, like everybody does. So yes. they can't think that that's a taboo subject, and it's often been a taboo subject in right. Ireland, and it's awfully important. But well,
1: the condition of your yeah. poo is indicative, yeah. isn't very, it? Very, yeah? very.
5: Whether it's very hard, whether it's very soft, or normal. And you know yourself from not being rude, but you know how good you feel if you have a good, what they call, evacuation. You yeah, actually yeah. feel so much better. Yeah. And it's not absolutely essential to poo every day. In fact, some people only poo a few times a week. But ideally, everybody would. And your fibre in your bowel, you you know, we'd have been brought up all the years, and this isn't taught in medical school yet, by the way. It's coming in now, um, that your fibre is so important. And people thought, oh, fibre is the old stringy stuff, and it comes out your bottom but the fibre is the food for mojo and bo that's actually what it is right. so
1: the good it, bugs. it comes
5: yeah. in it go, good bugs comes into the bowel in the way of the fruit the vegetables the nuts the seeds the herbs and the spices the natural normal pure foods and they eat it and they what they actually do which is miraculous there are tight junctions in the bowels stopping it leaking and it's a very very thin layer between the bowel and outside and the outside is is not the place that, that any foodstuffs want to be and the bugs actually literally make the mucus who, that line the bowel and keep and protect it and that's what they do they make the mucus and they tighten the junctions and the bowel stays intact and doesn't leak. If you eat a, a diet high in processed foods in the saturated fats in the sugars the, the bugs, the, the good ones, Mojo and Bo are floundering. The other fellows eat the mucus and out the, the the foodstuffs, the neurotransmitters, all those things, out they go into the body and cause havoc. The autoimmune illnesses are the very first ones that will arrive. And that is just, it's just mm. so... And even simple. in your
1: own career, Henry, have yeah. you seen a deterioration in, in, in terms of, you know, the microbiome?
5: Um, oh, so much so much and as I say to you it all makes sense to me now years and years ago believe it or not and I have to mention this man in the 1950s who was a Dennis Burkett he was an Irish surgeon working in Africa and he was really seeing the African communities and how they were thriving on their fibrous diet. And he thought in not getting cancers, for instance, and he thought it was the fibre. He wasn't sure how it worked because nobody knew about the microbiome then. And fast forward to these years now, and now we know, and... It is an emerging science, but it's still a very established science, and it is absolutely for certain. It is not maybes or maybes. This is the the business and this is the way to go forward. And I am seeing as people get busier, women get so busy, you know, it's very, very difficult Mm. to produce a a meal for a family every night. Very, very difficult to keep picky eaters uh, happy, you know, the sensitivity to this and an allergy to that. I see it more and more and more. And It is coming much more with our modern lifestyle, our fast food culture. Go in and get a ready meal, go in and buy uh, pot noodles instead of preparing a meal from scratch at home. And I know that's aspirational. I know it's not always easy, but there are ways and means. It is very doable and it's preventative medicine at its absolute best. Mm. You will prevent 90% of illness by eating right.
1: It's often cheaper uh, as well. In
5: the long run, it is. And I can tell you as somebody who has told so many people, and this is on the extreme level, say they have bowel cancer and almost without fail, and there will only be an odd one that would have a diet that I really would not expect it to happen in. When I interviewed them, asked them the questions about their diet, their lifestyle, perhaps obesity, which is a huge thing now, um, I, I just it's just so plain that they could have prevented this. And I have to tell them and you'd be surprised, some people totally expect that they'll have cancer coming into me, and some people totally don't. And it is so awful to have to tell somebody that they've cancer because I'm ruining their lives it's awful and you know I am and I could have prevented this if I got my hands on them 30 years or 40 years before so I am trying to do that now I'm trying to do that now
1: yeah, and and you're certainly doing it extremely well uh, where, where the book is concerned. Will you tell me a little bit about bran? Because many of us were brought <laughs> up to believe that, oh, you know, have loads of bran there in the mornings along with your cornflakes and you'll all be grand. But now it seems to have turned out that that's not the thing.
5: Well, you see, bran is one of the fibres, so it's all very fine. But basically, once something goes into a factory and is changed, it's not so good anymore. So to get bran just like bran, well, bran is like... You know, it's very processed when you think of it. So, you want to go back to the basic grains like the oatmeals and the wheat grains and the millets and all those kind of buckwheat, all those things that are not changed. Once it's changed, like I'd even say to you, I would be saying to people to eat pure butter, pure milk. Proper yogurt, none of this low-fat stuff. Because once it's gone in and changed, it's different. In order to get some a yogurt low-fat, they're going to add sugar to it to make it more tasty, all that kind of thing. So I, and albeit in small quantities, I'm not telling everybody to go and eat loads of butter on the bread, but just a scrape Mm. of proper, say Kerrygold butter, so much better for you than eating um, the modern margarine. If you look at the ingredients, and that's another thing I'm trying to get in the book, have the children go and take an interest in food and pick up a thing and look at the ingredients and look at all of them. So bran is a typical thing of that. To get bran in a packet, by God, has gone through rigorous changes. Right, whereas oatmeal hasn't. And if you look at, um, say, the oatmeal that's coming out of Lavins, which is organic, yes, I, it's a no-brainer, really. Those kind of foods.
1: So mm. we're back to your porridge in the mornings. Absolutely, porridge uh, is the brilliant as well. Yes. Um, the temptation that's there, and God knows, I know about this myself, and me because I have a problem with sweets, <laughs> Everybody big has. time. But I mean, you go to buy to pay for your petrol now, and you're yeah. surrounded by surrounded.
5: temptation. We, it's kind of know. food porn. It's everywhere. Everywhere there's ads, there's pictures, there's, uh, you know, it is just surrounding. And, you know, at the checkout. Now, I want people to be human, too. I'm no angel. Uh, But if you eat the way I recommend, which is a whole food plant based diet with a small amount of meat and that. And I can tell you about that every time another day. You will change your taste buds to less, less um, crave the sweet stuff. You actually will. It's incredible. You can change your your t- taste buds completely. So that by craving eating this will way. leave you, The will craving it? will go because Mo and Joe and Bo will be in control, not no so and foe. If you can get the balance right in your bowel, they're so happy then. You're happy and you don't have cravings. Now, I would say to you, if I was on death row, the one thing I'd ask for would be a bar of jerry milk chocolate. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but... I have myself trained now that I actually don't crave it. I'll have a piece every day, maybe two pieces, but I won't eat a whole bar. I wouldn't dream of it. I won't want it. And it doesn't make me feel so good anymore anyway, so I don't bother. You should eat dark chocolate, by the way. Dark chocolate is really good for you, not in a huge quantity, Mm. but dark chocolate and a cup of coffee, that's an excellent treat for you and excellent for your microbiome. Coffee do, is very, very good for
1: you. Do talk to me a little bit about meat because it's yeah, something that we've spoken about on the programme several times and a lot of very divided uh, opinion on it as there well. What, what's your opinion on it, anne
5: My opinion on it, and this would be coming from my opinion, but also obviously a whole load of studies, Frank, yes. is that red meat is inflammatory to the bowel, there is no doubt about it. It causes what does that mean? Now? Well, basically, that the heme is probably because of the red, the heme, because of it in the blood, it's just causing a reaction in the bowel that isn't so good for Mo and Joe and Bo, basically, and they're not thriving on it. Now, what is awfully important to know in meat is what it what do you think the meat you ate, what it ate that's the vital thing, right. So if you're coming from, as we are, a county with agriculture very much to its fore, I'm actually married to a farmer, but he is a tillage farmer, but say a a cattle farmer, their cows are out in the fields eating grass and they have a relatively okay life. So grass-fed beef is okay in moderation. What isn't okay is the processed red meat and none of us should be eating it. So salami, chorizo, sausages I'm afraid now you think of me everything I love um, yeah unfortunately mm. now if you think of pigs right Mm. and all the pig farmers are going to hate me but basically pigs are not out foraging around anymore are they they're lying in their own dirt on their sides getting so fat they actually can't stand up and you know to, to intensively rear animals like that you're going to have to use antibiotics and things like that and I know they are controlled but not controlled maybe the way that we should. And Mm. really, if you want to eat pork and bacon, it should be actually free range.
1: And the fact that some of this is um, full of antibiotics, what is that doing to us then? Is that playing into this whole uh, thing Uh, uh, that we're immune to the use of... Yeah, Absolutely.
5: And, you know, in the 50s, they realised that giving antibiotics to the animals in America, say, that were intensively reared, was a growth promoter as well. And you know that. So they used antibiotics as growth promoters, as they are, because they interfered the microbiome in such an extent that people put on weight. And now, then it happened that people were putting on weight, eating the meat from the animals who had had antibiotics. And they also were getting resistance to them. It's awfully important. Awfully important what you're eating what it ate. Don't forget that. So red meat in moderation, in moderation. I would say to my patients once a week and I'd say to them, if you have a ham sandwich, that's the once a week to me and they're not very happy with me, may I tell you, but that's what I would be saying to them. Chicken is better for you because it's a white meat, right? But it is again in moderation. I would be kind of going for free range and organic if you can. Now it's not easy and it's more expensive. Um, fish, I have a huge issue with fish farming. Junior. Fish farming, they're eating themselves along with their own dirt. And I really think it's not controlled well enough. The multinationals are controlling it now. I'd really ask, why not get children? That's what I'm trying to get. The children in mm. Mind, where has it come from? And if we get everybody asking that... That would makes such a difference to how our health goes.
1: The, the most striking um, sentence in the entire book comes at the very end, in fact, where it says that once your microbiome is fed properly by what you eat, your chance of getting any disease is greatly reduced, if not cancelled altogether. That's a big statement.
5: It is. And I absolutely Do stand by Do you stand by it? that? Completely. And if you do any research, as I've done, into what we call the blue zones, the places where people have an idyllic kind of way of living, you know, they're, again, the sociability, like Father was saying in your last piece, awfully important. They're all together, likes of Okinawa, um, there's Loma Linden, um, California, there's Nicosia in Greece. Those people do that. They're, they extremely eat well, very little animal fats and proteins, mostly plants and that kind of food. They don't smoke, hugely important. They die of old age with their minds intact because, by God, you need to go into the nursing homes here and see the Alzheimer's. That is preventable. In almost every case, that So we're
1: living longer, but not, not
5: necessarily well. No, absolutely not. We're, like, we're not doing health care, we're doing sick care. And that's what I'm doing in the hospital and it drives me mad. And that's why I've written this book, because I want to stop that. Now, they say 50% of what you eat feeds yourself and 50% feeds your doctor. Don't forget that. And I know I'm doing the doctors out of a job in the future, but I don't care because I hate having to tell people they have chronic illnesses. Like, it is just awful and it is preventable.
1: Somebody looking for some advice from you, Anne-Marie, yeah. uh, where, where uh, a brand of microbiotics are concerned. Do you, do you believe in that notice, uh, notion of the microbiotics? No.
5: No, no not no. really. Are these yogurts
1: um, that are supposed to replace the...
5: Yeah, supplements is huge. You know, the supplement industry yeah. was 160 billion a year and all people have to do is eat properly. They don't need probiotics. They don't need any of those. they actually vitamins. They don't. If they eat properly, they don't need any of them. And... I'll stand corrected maybe in a few years where they find something really works for something. But at the moment, if you eat properly, you eat the fruit, vegetables, nuts, seed, fibre, preferably organic. Eat fermented foods, awfully important for you. They like a live, natural yoghurt. You've got all the bugs you need. You don't need probiotics. Why pay for them?
1: But there's a whole industry. Oh, it's massive. Massive industry.
5: And who's who's pushing that? The multinationals. Who's pushing it? The chronic ill health of people. Who's pushing it? All the food that's in packets in the supermarkets. Look at people's trolleys. They laugh at me at work. I say the one place I couldn't work would be on the checkout. I would kill people. I (laughs) said, what? What are you doing? Are you buying? I've been behind And now. Honestly, you have no idea. I and, wouldn't be able. I would queuing, actually not be able to stop. If, if you're queuing
1: out. up uh, with somebody, do you, do you feel that urge to say, please I don't, would, please don't I don't
5: it. because I'd be happy to I belt in the gob. Yeah. And you know yourself, you'd be awfully PC now. The PC brigade wrote out to get me a lot of the time. But I really don't care because I'm so frustrated and this is my act right, to try to change that. And
1: the act is called Bug of <laughs> yeah. War. What you eat can help you win. Um, where can we get it? Where well at we the
5: moment it, it is available only in a few places because I didn't go with a publisher, I didn't go with a publicist, I'm doing this myself and I'm yes. working full time. So it's in the in the hospital shop, it's 12 euro it's in Cannes bookstore in Kilkenny, it's in um, uh, a bookstore in, Kil- in um, Galway uh, I'll have to think of the name yeah, of it I problem. sent it yeah. up there, but it's hard to get it into places because I ring them up right and they say send us an email And I never get an answer from the email. So anybody who is out there or any teachers are out there, please contact me with a view to having a look at this and maybe teaching it in your schools, because that's where I really want it. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm under my name, Dr. Anne-Marie Eustace Ryan. And you can order the book from me. I post it to you if they pay by Revolut or PayPal or whatever. Very good so indeed. And that's the way.
1: And we, Emma will have all of those details Thank just you. in case you, you miss them. There, A lot of people on to us asking your advice about various different oh, product, products and stuff. <laughs> you, you, you're saying if you eat well, you don't need any of this stuff. No, is you don't.
5: It? And I can sort people out. Now, you'll still feel, you'll still find, fan that people can do everything right and they still have a bit of a trouble. Yeah. And what I say to them is get a diary. Don't go to any food allergy people or anything get a diary, write down exactly what you eat and drink, by the way, um, and see is there a pattern to it. Because almost all of us can be our own kind of um, scientist and see what it is, is setting off our bit of bloating or a bit of diarrhoea. Almost always. So I will get loads of people ask me things like that. And almost always you'll find they're doing something. They might be adding sweeteners. Mm. I hate them. You're better off taking the whole thing than sweeten- things with sweeteners. You'd be
1: sweeteners. better off with sugar than
5: sweet. Yeah, honestly. Because you know, they know have said they're about? Totally
1: you about 50 explosive things I know this morning, I have, you know yeah. that. Yeah, I
5: should have a regular spot
1: here. <laughs> I don't be on <all> <laughs> well, you'd, you'd be more welcome, you'd be extremely welcome. Uh, one of our listeners says, and the gut microbiome is so important for our mental health, too. It's not just fighting off disease. In the 60s in America, they spent twice as much on food as they did on medicine, now they spend three times as much oh, on God. medicine. The food is the problem, and I'm a farmer.
5: I know, that's a, that is a great statistic. Isn't that incredible? And 25% of children in America have a chronic illness and 20% of young adults aged 20 or more are on one prescription drug. That is the way the world is going and we're never far behind America, don't forget that. And we can prevent this. We can prevent it. Why not? We did the plastic bags, we did the smoking. Why can our next thing not be the microbiome? It's very
1: doable. Well, Bug of War certainly will go a long way to uh, making that happen. Uh, Anne-Marie, it was a real pleasure to, to to speak to you today. And thank you very much, Dean. We'd love yeah. to have you on the show any time at all. Love uh, Dr it. Anne-Marie Eustace Ryan there. And as I say, her book is called Bug of War. And I would highly recommend it to you. We'll take a break back in a moment.
0: Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the premier county. Slattery'sGarage.ie you
1: Now, Austin was on to us from the UK with a brilliant question for Dr. Anne-Marie. And sadly, she has left the building, Austin. was a great question. You wanted her opinion on inter- intermittent uh, fasting. Uh, whether it's good or bad. I presume she would say it's bad. Probably I'd say she she probably would say just just eat well in some way but then again I'm not speaking for her and we will find out great question I wish I thought of that uh, 83 311 now earlier on we were speaking to poet and author Eleanor Hooker um, about the removal of some references to things like characters, appearance and weight from the Roald Dahl uh, children's books I'm glad to be joined now by Helen good morning Helen
7: good
12: morning Fran how are you? I'm
1: very well indeed great to talk to you today Helen what do you make of uh, this this interference with uh, literature in some way to make it kind of I don't know acceptable nowadays
12: I find it shocking I would regard it as not political correctness, but censorship uh, many years ago, we would have had censorship in the form of books being burned, yeah removed from publication and burned. Now we have the censorship in the form of the books being rewritten to the extent that they' have been the, the story itself has been destroyed
1: and where would you stop it, Helen? You see this is what i 'm wondering where yes. you know would, would you look at all the great works of literature and and uh, change things and destroy things. I don't know.
12: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Because I was listening to that slot there this morning and I found it fascinating. I was there cleaning windows listening to Mm. it. And uh, I was thinking straight away, you mentioned Shakespeare and Mm. that's where my mind was going. Should Shakespeare be, re- be rewritten? Because, as you mentioned, this anti-Semitism in, um, Othello, in Othello. In many plays, yes, but about the suicide in Romeo and Juliet.
1: Yes, and of course, Shylock in, in uh, Merchant of yes. Venice as well. Stereotypical Jewish, like I mean, it. did it, yes. it, it, it. You know. I. I, I don't know. I, it's. Uh, it's crazy, isn't it?
12: And then even sometimes it's the words that are used that may not necessarily mean what. It's assumed, I mean, and I'm thinking about. I think of course it's not King Lear. It's the one where there's a, a, a line in a fool or fool or fool. I met a fool in the forest. And of course in Shakespearean times, a fool was the courtier. The a, a courtier jester. who was yeah. at the, yeah, the jester gesture yeah. at the elbow of the king yeah. and could was the only one who could make a laugh of the king and not lose his head. Uh, oh, you're course, making no, a great
1: the, point. So, I mean, yeah, I see what you mean now. So, the meaning of a word in its time is quite different now. Yes. Yeah.
12: Exactly. Yeah. I think even the word um, "gay." Mm.
1: Yeah.
12: Uh, special. Yes. And because no special can be used in, I've heard it used in derogatory terms yeah. about somebody. Thinking that's cruel because we do refer to children who have special needs as special but it's you know and it's twisted but let's say 25 years ago special was a different word
1: of course and the ludicrousness of um, it, it, like they wanted to change the word fat to enormous I mean, oh. as I said to Eleanor I prefer to be called fat than enormous you know so well, you, you'd wonder yeah. about the sanity of this really
12: You would, and technically, a person who is carrying excess weight isn't carrying excess flesh, they're actually carrying excess fat. So fat is is far more descriptive of what it is. Enormous is terrible.
1: And also, you know, gender being eliminated with books no longer referring to female characters, for example. You
12: know? Yeah, well, King Lear, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) You know, his three daughters who play those wonderful parts. Uh, so that, that's goodbye. That's um, maybe it's, it's well, gentrification. And what's wrong with male, female?
1: Well, they might try and make uh, a King Lear gender neutral in some way as well. And
12: then, can you imagine? <laughs> you're crazy. And I actually, I was going to say too that uh, like we're all born male, female. Some of us know we are in the wrong body. That's you know that's a yeah. different a different currency yeah. altogether. And some people are gay, and you see this also in the animal kingdom. Except the animals aren't all confused about whether they should be it. Yes, it's
1: you know, it, it's 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 natural. It's accepted, isn't that what it's, it's about? Yeah.
12: And actually, and in the animal kingdom, uh, my sister had a gay bull. They had to get rid of him because he was no goat to them. <laughs>
1: The you know, the they part.
12: only found out when they had another bull in the field next to them. Oh, my God. Oh my <laughs> and my I God. don't think she was a very pretty sight.
1: God almighty. Um, yeah, didn't they save a gay bull? And wasn't he sort of a refugee over in the uh, UK? Uh, they saved his life. They bought him. They didn't want to put down. Anyway, that's just a memory of mine. But are you worried about where all of this will stop, Helen? Is that...
12: I- Yes, I am, because we have so many wonderful works of literature and I know Roald Dahl could be incredibly nasty. He was known as Rotten Roll.
1: Yeah, he he wasn't a nice character, that's for no, sure. No, but his yeah.
12: books are being loved by Definitely. children and what damage has it caused? Yeah. It's this yet again, we're bowing the, the majority are bowing to the minority who are dem- making crazy demands and being listened to because they're the minority and it's being done in the terms of political correctness, but I see it as censorship, and there is no stopping, stopping censorship when it gets in like this, because any book can be it can be rewritten, and, and, and it can and, and be and seen like, as an insult or whatever, like you know. Way back, Agatha Christie was quite correctly, if certain things were changed, mm. like there's a book. Now it has been renamed again, but I know it went straight. I have to copy Ten Little Indians. Yes. Now yeah. I think you may be aware of the original title the N word. Yeah. yeah, of course. The word, yeah. which I have always found a horrific word. Anyway.
1: Yes. Yeah.
12: But the book itself wasn't changed completely, and that woman was incredibly. Uh, Racist. She was. Yeah. Homophobic. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, sorry. No, she wasn't homophobic because she wrote the book and it involved a, a relationship between two women. Did so it? she was yeah, I cannot oh. remember the title of it, but yes, she did.
1: Wow, oh, isn't that interesting? I, I must certainly uh, look that up. Every few years, I, I I try and struggle with Ulysses. One of these years, I'm going to finish it. But uh, but my 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 latest uh, attempt at it uh, really made me see how anti-Semitic uh, it was. I mean, really, <laughs> really overtly so. And I'm wondering then would would they have us rewrite something as great as that then as well? You know, but why why not? Given
12: that they're... Already interfering with so many other books, right. when they're crying out and screaming, "Oh, don't teach the children ba black sheep'." Yeah, I know. And, and that, they think that that whole thing is racist because one for the uh, one for the master, one for the dame, and they're talking about a slave. Now, I don't think that's the origin of the of the the rhyme, but for somebody who is looking for insult, they will perceive it forever and want it changed. So, where does it stop? It's a very good question.
1: And that's the problem, isn't it? Helen, it was such a pleasure to talk to you today and thank you so much for your time.
12: Thank you very much, Frank. Take care. Have a good day. Good good morning
1: to you. Bye-bye to you now. 1800 938 007. Gardening is on the way.
0: Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Well, I remembered uh, commiserations
1: to Molly O'Connell. She made it all the way to the final of Glore Tira last night. Now, sadly, didn't win, but certainly performed extremely well. And I know she's very grateful to the people of Tipperary for the huge amount of support that she received. Uh, Brian was on to us and he says, I'd suggest that uh, this rewriting issue is our own fault for entering into this PC wokeness nonsense to the point where it's now being preached in schools and colleges. It's an agenda being pushed by NGO organisations like the WEF and it's time that we pushed back against it, says Brian. All right, it's time for gardening and delighted to be joined as usual by Alton Nesbitt of Centenary Home and Garden. Alton, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Great to talk to you today. You're going to begin with talk news about the lawns and maintenance and the moss on the lawns and all of that because they're in a poor enough state at this point, aren't they?
13: Uh, they are, and even in the last couple of weeks, it's been phenomenal—the amount of growth of of, of um, algae and yeah. moss in, in the lawn. So really, um, it, it's a good time to start treating it um, because the the, the temperature is going to start to rise, and, and you're going to get good growth in the in the next couple of weeks. So uh, really, what I tend to do is because because the lawns. It has been quite mild over the winter, but there has been um, a, a significant amount of growth in the lawns. So it's a good idea it's just to, to keep it maintained. is just to raise the up high and do a tip mow on the lawn just to keep the lawn in check and uh, the grass in check. So that that allows, it, ex, it, it exposes the moss that's there uh, uh, so that you, then you can treat it um, uh, with um, a, 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 something like a hydia, a, a lawn weed feed and muscular. This is a, a, a great um, uh, product to use because it'll do uh, the weeds as well as the moss, as well as uh, feed the lawn as well. Now, what I tend to do is is get a lawn spreader and set it to number three um, and uh, do uh, a dressing of the the Hydea weed feeding uh, uh, and lawn fertiliser over the lawn. And that will, uh, again... Uh, get rid of any any patch um, that's on 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 the lawn of, of moss, um, and also feed the grass that and it'll to sticking up in those kind of patchy areas where the moss has been. Now, with, if you have a very uh, let's say a lot of weeds in the lawn, mm. things like buttercups, dandelions, plantain, um, or even the daisies as well, I would use a thing called uh, dicofol. Now, dicofol is is a very good product to get rid of any any uh, broadleaf that's in your lawn. Um, again. Uh, that's quite a good thing to use. Do a tip mow on your lawn. Then three days after mowing, uh, spray with the diagraphar, and that will get rid of them. you see the weeds twisting and torting, uh within uh, two to three weeks. So, again, keep the lawn more high for those two to three weeks, allowing the, the digrovar to, to get down to the root system and kill any creeping buttercup, daisies, dandelions, or, 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 uh, or that that's in your lawn. Now, um, if your lawn is very yellow now at the moment or, or is very... Um, is not very green in colour. It's a good idea is to give them a, a landscape pro lawn fertiliser. This is a great granulated fertiliser just to green up the lawn. Let's say if you have uh, people coming in the, in the next three weeks, you want to have that lovely green sheen on, on, on the lawn. Uh, is use as Landscape Pro Lawn Fertiliser. Now, it's a two to three month uh, slow-release fertiliser, and that 5 uh, kg is for about 200 metres squared. So do quite a large area, um, and, and it's quite a good lawn fertiliser to use. Now, if you have a smaller area, uh, let's say almost like a, 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 a very fine lawn, I would use a a liquid lawn fertilizer, and that's quite good. Something called, it's an Epity Supreme Green Lawn Fertilizer. Now, this has a lot of seaweed in it, and I always find anything that has seaweed um, in in, in it, as the liquid feed, is fantastic for for, um, foliage. Um, and makes um, it more disease-resistant to uh, things like fungal attack or anything like that. So you'll have this lovely rich green colour in the lawn. So use the Epity, uh, Epity Supreme Green Lawn Fertiliser. It's a liquid feed for that. Now, a lot of people used to use sulfate of iron years ago, and, and sulfate of iron is very, um, it almost turns the lawn black, yes. um, uh, the, 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 the patching, and you have to scarify or break out. the the moss um, uh, as much as possible and if if your lawn is almost spongy with moss um, you can use sulphate of iron and that will get right down to the the, the patch of the the moss Uh, but you have to rake that out afterwards and that takes about uh, three weeks for that to work you do a dusting of the sulphate of iron over the lawn um, and that will will burn off any any moss that's there Um, but you do rake it out and in those patchy areas, sow a number two grade lawn seed in those kind of patchy areas just look at utility grade Grade lawn seed, um, and that will germinate quite quickly for you. Uh, do light, light um, uh, dusting up either silica sand or, or even uh, even a multi-purpose compost over the seed, and that will germinate quite quickly for you. And so you won't have any patches within your lawn. Again, feed with the Landscape Pro lawn fertilizer afterwards, so you get a good good thick um, mat of um, uh, cover over the um, uh, lawn. So it's a, it's, it's completely uh, grass and no weeds or moss.
1: Very good indeed. So a lot of great advice there for those of us who have a, an unruly lawn. Um, some questions in for you as well, Alton, as usual. Is it too late now to sow cuttings? I want to put down a hedge.
13: No, it's not at all. Um, now, cuttings are, are, are... It's very good to take um, say hardwood cutting um, from, from any of the hedging. Things like your, your laurels your Grisalinia, your Escalonia, um, even, even Fuchsia, uh, are quite, quite good to take as, as a hardwood cutting. I would take a nine inch long cutting, but pencil thickness, um, and use, uh, and get, and remove, um, the lower leaves, uh, from the base of the cutting and, uh, dip uh, it into a little bit, little, little bit of rooting hormone at the base of the cutting and put that directly into a, a multi-purpose compost, um, something like the John Ninnies uh, with added uh, um, uh, with a multi-purpose, and um, that's a nice gritty compost and that, uh, they'll root quite quickly for you um, now uh, I always tend to put those into, into kind of a shaded area uh, where they don't dry out too much so that um, uh, they'll, they'll root quite, quite quickly for you in kind of the middle of the summer, and then you can transplant them out in the autumn.
1: All right. A listener says, "Can I cut back rockery plants that have gone woody, and also osteopernum? It seems uh, it's yes. an African daisy flower. It says yes, yeah, oh, Is, that, lo- is, that, is yeah. that right? So, what, what about cutting back the the rockery plants anyway? They've gone yeah. woody.
13: Well, a lot of the alpine plants um, now, things like the ibers, which would be, um, or, or even the helianthus." Um, these are kind of like the rock roses or rockery plants that get a little bit woody after a while. Um, you can prune them back, but only halfway to encourage growth from the centre of it. Uh, if you cut them back too hard, they won't recover. So, Eurybia um, ibris or, or, or Helianthus, um, or even the Campanulas, things like that that get a little bit woody, um, you can only, only cut them back halfway now, and that will just encourage good growth from the centre of them. Now, a lot of the alpines will be just coming into flower. Things like um, or breeches, Arabis. Um, uh, as in saxotile, or even the, the Saxophages, they'll all, all start coming into flower now in the next couple of weeks. So, really, don't do not do too much hard pruning on those. But you can do um, with the, the Helianthemums um, or the Companions, they're kind of more for kind of midsummer onwards with their flower. So, it's mm. good to cut them back halfway, just to encourage more growth from the center. Otherwise, they do get very untidy looking, a little bit straggly looking. So, um, uh, 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 just halfway now for the moment.
1: And that osteopernum?
13: Well, oh, osteosperms then are lovely cape daisies. These are, are great plants. They're almost like kind of almost ground cover, but they, they have fantastic daisy type flowers on them. And the more sunnier, the better for those. Um, in bright sun, because they open up in the sunlight and then close at night. Um, so really, uh, with the osteosperms, they do do spread spread quite a lot. So do cut them back again, uh, just to, to to promote growth from the centre of them. Uh, again, anything that you do cut off, um, they grow quite easily from cuttings. So put them straight into the ground and they'll look quite easily for you. Um, but a lot of the deadheading, uh, cut off any of the dead stems that were from last year, uh, cut them right back down to ground level. But uh, 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 and and, that, and give it a feed of sulphate potash just at the base of, of those um, osteosperms that's just encouraging to come on then um, a lot better for you
1: Right, when do I prune? Is it a hebe shrub? H-E-B-E?
13: Hebe's are fantastic they're lovely um, evergreen type shrubs but mm-hmm. the, they are frost sensitive so it's very important to only prune them back once the risk of frost is gone and so uh, you have lovely um, it, it, uh, what's the Hebe funderlandiae or, or, or Hebe um, uh, mid-summer mid-sum, fire. Um, they, these are Hebe's that are, uh, they've quite woody, um, uh, uh, they're about two to three foot high, and then you'll you find them very stemmy in, in the centre. But you'll always find at the very, very base of it, it will always re-sprout at the very base of it. So it's very important to prune them back um, again, just about halfway once the risk of foss is gone. So late, kind of in the middle of May onwards, you can prune them back and they, they'll uh, come on fairly well as well. Use the poultry near fertiliser at the base of those that would just encourage more growth from, from, from the base of
1: the, the hebes. Right. So you might take a final one for me, if you would, Alton. What could have happened to my lovely cordline uh, trees? I planted them two years ago. They were doing great, and then in the last month or so, it looks like they're dead. The leaves have gone a greenish brown.
13: Yeah. What happens to cordlines? Sometimes they do get um, a rust on them, but generally the cordlines always suffer from uh, frost damage. Now we didn't have that much frost this year. Um, But generally the the bark would start to peel off or get very soft on the trunk of it. Um, uh, And and really, if that happens... the best thing to do is to cut it down at ground level it'll re-sprout again instead of having a single stalk coming up you'll have a multi-stemmed one um, and they'll always re-sprout again they're, they're quite good that way um, but if, if, the, if it's completely soft the bark of it has gone soft um, it's not going to recover but they always come at the very base they re-sprout from the very base of the, of the um, cord line um, and, and instead of having a single stem you'll have a multi-stem uh, and they come on, on, on fairly well after that but it does take a number of years to come back
1: then. All right. Alton, Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Happy gardening to you. That's Alton Nesbeth of Centenary Home and Garden. That's it for me. Emma produced to Ali looks after her content. Stephen is on the way to take you back down the time tunnel and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Look after yourselves, won't you? Bye-bye.